This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. G'day, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. I've got a treat for you. This is a conversation featuring Grammy-winning producer and engineer extraordinaire, Mike Exeter. Mike covers a heap of ground throughout almost three hours of conversation. He talks about his work with Cradle of Filth across the two albums that matter, Dusk and Her Embrace and Cruelty and the Beast. And then there's the EP from the Cradle to Enslave. You'll be interested to know that Mike helped solve the riddle of just why Jan Peter Jenkel was asked to produce Cruelty and the Beast. And if you've listened to my conversations with Stuart Anstis, Nick Barker and Greg Moffat from the group, much of what Mike has to say expands on topics covered throughout those episodes. Now, his insight into Cradle of Filth's glory years is but one aspect of Mike's amazing career. And throughout this chat, other topics covered include working with his good mate, Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath throughout the past quarter of a century, working on Black Sabbath's final album. And he puts to rest the speculation around Bill Ward's non-involvement Dealing with Ozzy means that you've got to deal with Sharon, so hear what he has to say about her. He also talks about what it was like to work with Rick Rubin. That's hilarious, actually. (laughs) And we dive into his work with Judas Priest, in which Mike settles a debate once and for all surrounding Glenn Tipton's contribution to the last album, Firepower. He also talks about working with Ronnie James Dio on the Heaven and Hell album from 2009. Elsewhere, Glenn Hughes, former priest, drummer, Dave Holland. They all get a mention. There's so much. This conversation was uh, actually recorded on a Sunday evening, Brisbane time. So I just spent two days at the Gold Coast water parks with my daughters. So if you're watching, that's why I'm a shade of beetroot red. And if you're listening, that's why I'm not as articulate as I wish that I could be. But Mike more than makes up for that. He's a terrific fella. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and I sincerely hope we can do it again as there are plenty of other topics to address such as his work, believe it or not, with Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. The fella's done it all. So here he is, Mike Exeter. I have to say the other week I was um, I was traveling, I do a lot of walking. Well, I haven't been recently, but I do mm. try to walk. Um, and I was... Um, uh, I had a listen to a, to a couple of the snip, not snippets. I listened to a good couple of hours of the Stuart and the um, the Greg interviews. Oh yeah, and uh, they're really interesting. I bless him, old Stuart. He was a good lad. I liked him. He really I'll, was. I'll start with that with on yeah. that point. Then, yeah, where, where does you've recorded the best in the business? Let's face it, and your mates right. with the best in the business. Where does Stuart rank? He was a. I I considered him a mate because we stayed in touch. Um, I think he was a really, really talented, talented guy um, who got. I'm guessing there was always fallouts in Cradle of Filth, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's he's up there with one of the the more creative um, talents in terms of writing and playing. He was he was a really really good player. But his creativity drove him, I think, more than his playing. I think he loved the actual getting his um, emotional creativity out. And, mm. um, I mean, we didn't speak for a long time. I bumped into him a couple of times and we didn't speak for a long time. Then I spoke to him a couple of years ago, you know, after probably like 15 years and we must have been on the phone for two hours. You yeah. know, so it's like it's that kind of thing. I think there was a 
there's that massive respect. And I did hear from his wife after he died, and apparently he'd always said nice things about me. So, you know, I always said what a great player he was. He made me laugh in the studio, mainly when he was getting mm. stressed by the other members of the band. I mean, it was like oh, no. I was the yeah. one they would come to, which was hilarious, you know. <laughs> Especially when you hear the full story of how I actually got involved in that project, you know, it's like <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, go ahead, tell but us I'm, that story. But I'm not going to tell you that. No, uh. <laughs> no. What happened was, um, I'd spent. This was the early '90s, so um, I'd spent the sort of the burgeoning years or the formative years of my career. Um, were, had been out in the the US. I'd gone to college out there. I'd done a little bit over here, but then I went to college out in Florida, and then I ended up in New York State. And I was really being influenced by a lot of the American rock stuff, stuff that I hadn't heard, um, just a totally different culture. Um, and by the time I got back to the UK, I was still trying to navigate through what was going on in the British music industry, which was um, we'd sort of been taken over by boy bands and um, very strange music industry stuff. Um, also during well i guess it was actually while i was still out in the states nirvana hit so that completely destroyed all the hair metal and maybe mm. sent it a bit more underground um and i never never really taken much notice of um of anything related to heavy metal black metal any of that stuff one of my friends at a studio i worked up up in rochester new york he was in, into it and he used to laugh at my reaction to the vocals and stuff like that um and um and it got to about i think it was 95 possibly yeah it would have been i think 95 um the uh of or 96 the um the guy from music for nations the record label who was dealing with them at the time i presume it was they just they'd split up and they'd reformed with this new lineup um and we they were they were looking to make the most of what they'd started with the previous lineup and so they had all the multi-tracks for what was to become dusk and they they liked birmingham in the midlands of the uk for some reason i think it was because um nick barker had a, a good friendship with the guys from napalm death who were local mm -hmm. so they they kind of gravitated towards wanting to do something around the midlands and i was head engineer at ub40 studio by this point and they um they'd got in contact we were pretty much the only only studio in town that was capable of doing 48 track stuff mm -hmm. um and they needed 48 tracks so they, they i think his name was dan but i may be wrong there so this guy from music for nations he i think he was a fellow aussie actually he got in okay. touch and he said oh um i i hear you're the uh the head engineer I, i'd love to um I'd love to talk to you about maybe producing this album. So I was like, yeah, great. <laughs> Send me a DAT, which in those days was a pretty high quality format of recordable cassette. Um, so this DAT arrived and I happened to be at home one day um, doing some wiring. We were upgrading the studio. So I took some cable looms home and um, I thought, oh, I'll put that, uh, that Cradle of Filth thing on um, and have a listen. <laughs> <laughs> and it coincided with this massive thunderstorm appearing outside <laughs> and then Danny's vocals and the drums yeah. didn't sound very big. Um, and it was just this noise. And I just went, no, <laughs> no, no, I, I don't know what I can offer to this. 
I probably should. I think I'm the wrong person to do this. This just isn't in my wheelhouse at the moment. You know, I mean, love, lovely that we've got this this band coming in. And I thought I'll have a word and I'll just say, I'll politely say, I don't think it's me. I don't think I do it justice. So I sort of turned it down. And then within um, within a few weeks, they... They'd been into. I think Faye Wolven had already taken on their management at the time. Okay, um, that settles that question. Then that's a big question that I had that I thought you might have been able to answer. So oh God! Then what was the question? Yeah. <laughs> it was exactly that because there's there's a whole the context of Faye Wolven coming in is the band effectively changing and becoming Danny and the Filths. Okay, right. that's the perception that I have, and that's based on the conversations that I've had to date. But in terms of obtaining a okay. definitive answer for when she came in, yeah, this was when Stuart was effectively the head of the band musically for for a couple of years. Yeah, I there. would, I would say so. Yeah, I mean, when I when they arrived, um, so they they got um, it, it did it did me a favour. So I was trying out a new assistant he'd he decided uh, this this guy was freelancing a guy called dan sprig i think it's been mentioned a couple of times uh-huh. yeah he was um he was a freelancer and he was coming in and he was assisting on the odd session um i already had another f- full-time assistant he was mainly tasked with working with ub40 so um dan was around the periphery and i knew he was into his heavy metal and rock so I thought, ah, oh, this could be perfect. If only they can find someone then to, to work on the album. So when Faye um, had, had entered the frame, this was way before they en- they came to the studio, so she was definitely involved. Mm. She'd mentioned it to Kit, her husband, and he was thrilled because it was his return to what was called the abattoir. It was Depp International in the nineties, but the Abattoir Studio was wow. Okay, the yeah. the original studio that UB40 built back in the early eighties. He'd done the first the, or the big Magnum album um, mm. uh, on a Storyteller's Night. He'd done that in the downstairs studio, so he was like, "Oh, this will be brilliant! I can come back and see the old studio, you know, and all this." And I didn't know any of his history. I didn't know Faye's history. I mean, long story short, she she'd worked for the um the Black Sabbath camp under um the guys that now look after Ian Gillen. Um, when mm. they had that management, Kit had done um Bowie. Uh he'd done David Gilmore album, which I was most impressed by being a Floydy. Mm. So well. he, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a little story in there for later as well, the Thin Lizzy <laughs> thing. That's quite funny. Um it involves the gladiators, the TV series. It's not um, really. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, gladiators <laughs> and cradle of filth in a building together. So um, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so they um, they had suggested Kit did it. So we had a chat, Kit and I, and I was like, "Oh great!" I said, "Look, we got this guy Dan, who who sounds like he's perfect to assist you on this." Um, so. It started to go ahead, and then they said, "Well, we 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 love the idea. Um, could we just get in for a day or so? We've got all these multi tracks to go through. We haven't got any rough mixes, so can we just have the studio for a day or so?" So I set that all up, and another assistant, Dan, sat with them overnight, and they literally just played the multi tracks and created um, um, rough mixes of the entire album as it stood. So, and he mm. had to do. Poor bugger, he had to do um, – drums were definitely okay. 
So everybody had the drums and then he had to do versions without bass, versions without guide guitars, versions without guide vocals. <laughs> so he was there for 24 is, hours. And this, this is, is the Cacophonus version. This was the original version that had different musicians that didn't have Stuart on it. Is this is that correct? Yes. Or is this, a this is this okay. is what I guess what they started to they, they overdubbed this. So whatever was on there got redone except the drums. Because the drums is nicked the entire way through on the pre, yes. on the original Sin version and then on the Music yeah. of Nations version. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um so that went well and they were like, yeah, we're great. Well, let's go ahead. Um and I didn't think much more about the project until they came in. And actually, I mean, they were so nice, all of them. They're just every one of them was a nice person. Yeah. You know, they, that's been my experience. They, yeah, they couldn't have couldn't have been more polite. I mean, I know, um, I know they hated the record label um, because that's their job. <laughs> um, I met Faith, uh, yeah, not not too short a time into it, as far as I can remember. Um, um, but yeah, she she was great. She she was a good person to have at the end of the phone to liaise mm-hmm. between you know what was going on, and obviously she was getting everything from Kit. Kit was a taskmaster, but he was great. Um, and, um, so, I mean, really that I, I didn't, I didn't really do that kind of music. Um, I, I wouldn't say I really do it now. Um, but I'm more, I'm capable of it now and I understand it. Um, but initially I was just on the periphery of it and, um, just sort of being a, a part of what needed to happen just to sort of make the session You know that that nothing else sounds like that album. I I just cannot understand why Mm -hmm. the management of Emperor or Satyricon or what have you heard, if they heard Dusk and went, wow, we don't want to sound exactly like this, but what you did here using Mm -hmm. 48 tracks, we need to do something similar Mm -hmm. because a lot of the music of that period, as as you're probably aware, I love Emperor and Satyricon Mm -hmm. and these great bands, but their music has suffered because it didn't have the depth and the breadth of what Mm -hmm. you brought to it. Well, I would I would say I think the reason that is is because Kit applied a classic sensibility to it, um, and I'm lucky. I say I started in the uh, late '80s, um, mm. so I came up through tape. Um, computers was something that we flew stuff across to and then got it back on tape as quickly as fucking possible because mm. we didn't trust that the data was going to be there the following day. As far as I can remember, the only computers involved in the making of Dusk were um, were probably my Mac running di- uh, an early version of Performer to do MIDI sequencing. Mm-hmm. There was no digital audio editing, workstation stuff, anything. So it was very much classic engineering, um, making it sound as huge and as lush as possible. Um Nick took a bit of exception to that, mainly because it probably wasn't brutal enough for him. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's a fine line, and I think that's why certain people are drawn to producing certain stuff. Um, I find a lot of modern metal is like an exercise in data entry. It's um, it's absolutely you know everything's on the grid, samples over everything. There's there's yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing that suggests any kind of emotional delivery. And let's face it. it I mean, when I was going through depression years ago, I listened to dark stuff because it actually it was uplifting. So it has to have emotion. All music has to have an emotional context. And um, 
you know, even through that recording, I managed to get over the fact that um, the screams, Danny's screams and squawks used to <laughs> go right through me, mm. but they complemented the vast orchestrations perfectly. Mm. And I think the thing about Dusk is that the band were still slightly subservient to the process of making it. Kit was a strong character. Um, he's the first person I'd ever told a band to shut up. I'm trying to do some work here while they're all getting louder in the back of the control room. And they all put their uh -huh. heads down and went, sorry, like naughty schoolboys, and then giggled, obviously. Mm. <laughs> but, um, so I think it was a very, very creative process. I learned a lot of Kit. I mean, he was like, we're going, I, I ended up assisting quite a lot on it. And by the time it got to the last minute overdubs um, and we went into mixing, I was full time assisting him because Dan Sprigg had gone down to do another project um, in the okay. other room. So I I had a fairly big part on the album. What, what a lot of people don't know, and um, God bless Greg. He's slightly in denial about the fact that I also did quite a lot of the keyboards on that album. Mm -hmm. That's come up a fair um, bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's for any fault of his own, but we we he just got hold of a Kurzweil K2500, I think, the band had owned, which was a great orchestral device. Um, and I um, I had a K2000, so I was helping him out with all that. And I think about a month or so in, um, he... He had some stuff he had to go and do back in Ireland. We we were all joking, the old racist thing of like he's gone back to tend to his potatoes or something. But he did have he had, he had some stuff he needed to get on with, and um, there wasn't there was a bed of keyboards there, but it wasn't what they were. Um, yeah, it's not not what they were looking for, but there was a hell of a lot more to get on with. So. Um, Look, Kit lovely, lovely fellow, lovely fellow, Greg. Sorry, just to interrupt. He's, He's lovely, a, awesome guy. guy. Speak to him semi-regularly over Messenger and whatever else since. And out of all of them that I've spoken to, he's probably the most different. You know, he's a, yes, he's a, he uh, you know, he manages York Minster, I think, at the moment. I mean, the yes. guy's a professional in a, in a very yeah. different sense to what the other guys are up to. Yeah, he he definitely didn't feel like he was part of the argument process mm. <laughs> that was going on. I mean, I would say Robin was quiet, um, but between Danny, Nick, and um, uh, and Stuart, there was definitely some, yeah, <laughs> there was a bit of uh, yeah, mm. arsiness going on, um, and that, I think that helps, you know, not to the point where people are falling out, but I think it helps with the process of everybody kind of checking everybody else's work. Um, but that that was what really got me involved. I ended up. Kit coming up to me saying, we've got a shitload to do. He goes, um, I've had a chat with the studio manager, and he said that the downstairs studio um, hasn't got much going on. If I send you downstairs with um, a couple of ADATs and you set up your keyboards, would you mind starting to do orchestrations? I mean, yeah, that'll be fun. So I spent at least a month doing all the orchestrations and playing as much on the um on the uh, on the album as was required following Stuart's guitar lines augmenting them there was some big powerful stuff in there um and um I would get on with that Kit would come down give me some direction Danny would come down Stuart would come down and then it would get taken onto the final multi tracks um and I in fact I remember just before we got the um it was about it was going to go to mastering 
or something um, very, very late on. And Danny said, have you heard Carl Miller's mask? And I went, oh, yeah, that's quite sweet, isn't it? He goes, well, we can't use the original. Could you redo that? So I spent a night redoing that for mm. them. Um, and that was great fun. It was like, I, I do remember it was like the days of we had CD sample libraries. So Danny was sat there with Robin going through the catalogue looking for things like woman crying, um, door creaking and all this stuff mm. while we were rebuilding um, Carmilla's mask. Um, so th- it was quite a creative time for me. I loved it. I, I really um really enjoyed the whole process um so by the time it got finished um it was a very lush sounding album that really everybody i think was pleased with the outcome and um it certainly went on to be something that i i listened to quite a lot which I, which really surprised me because there were some great songs on there it's a monument to what was possible that was then never repeated for some reason it's the only yeah. album that sounds like it yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the follow-up wasn't quite so good. Well, you were you were a part of that too, apparently. I oh, look, there's there's a I lot was. of questions that come up about that album, and in mostly, songs, why does it sound so shit? Yeah, and look, Nick's yeah. told me Nick's told me, and Nick's not the sort of guy that cries easily, as you can as you bloody well know. And <laughs> and Sarah has stated that that she couldn't believe what she heard or words to the effect. No. You know, the, the 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 sentiment was similar from both of them. Yeah, Stuart was a bit kinder to it ultimately, but then Danny's gone back and bloody redone it, and it sounds well, worse. I, I I just can't understand what the hell's going on with the you know. It's a, it sounds thicker, um, but but it's lost its dynamic. It's lost the guitars yeah. were at the center of that, and at least whether it was well, that's easy. probably because Stuart's playing them, you know, and uh, Danny doesn't like Stuart. <laughs> yeah, it's that. and that's but that's what it seems to come down to, doesn't it? It seems to be like if Danny yeah. likes somebody, then their mm. position is elevated. And if it, if they if he doesn't, like with Nick and Stuart, mm. then let's make their parts not sound as say the way that they can, the way that they can to enhance the music, yeah. and it's just self sabotaging. The thing for the thing for me, I hadn't seen Danny since nineteen ninety nine when we did um, um, from uh, what was the EP we did from the Cradle to from, a Slave. Yeah, yeah, we did that, um, and I liked Danny. I mean, uh, I hadn't seen him until two years ago. We met at Bloodstock, um, and uh, we had a we must have been chatting for about forty minutes. It was lovely. It was just hilarious. We were going back to all the stories about paper planes with swastikas on them and all this shit that had gone on with Jan. It, it yeah. was fun. And then five minutes later, I bumped into Nick and I went, oh, I've just had a catch up with Danny. He goes, you poor cunt. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, Nick, it's been what, 25 lost, years? Mate. Let yeah. it go. Um, I get on really well with Nick. He's a good friend of um, my mate Andy Sneap. You know, it's like mm. we we see each other. Um, but... I'll tell you something, and I'm, I, you know, this isn't me trying to ingratiate to anybody, but I've worked with um, with Tony for 26 years. He he, my introduction to Iomi came as a result of Kit Wolven on that album on Dusk. Mm-hmm. That was where the introduction happened. <laughs> Fronting a band and keeping it together is the most thankless thing you could ever want to do. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Foo Fighters back and forth documentary where Dave Grohl comes across as a um, a bit of an egotistical, doesn't care about the band members, almost like he anything to keep the band going. And in a sense, that's what people do. 
it's it's down to them to keep the name going. Tony's coming for Flack all the time, you know, the revolving doors of Black Sabbath. It's like that's what happens when you've got someone that is pretty single-minded about this is what they do. Um, and I think it's it's really bad. You know, families fall out. Um, mm. What happened with Tony and Ronnie over the years? I mean, yeah. thankfully they they buried the hatchet long before Ronnie died. But this is what happens, and I do think it's a shame because I think when we recorded Cruelty, it sounded fucking huge, and by the time arguments had happened and complete trust had evaporated in the producer it was never going to be anything other than a shit show so and, was, um, was do you think yan or jan sorry i don't know how you pronounce mm, his name in I mean, it was yan yeah is he as much of a victim as say Stuart or nick in that process or sarah even i think um i think he was the wrong choice now this this again um what because <laughs> i'm giggling because it's bringing back memories of, of the, the running jokes mm. um what happened was i was brought in on that album the band wanted me to produce it the record label said we need a better name than mike he hasn't done enough oh my in God. this really well, you know this is, Mu- this is 98 actually said that yeah well yeah. pretty much i mean it was like it was it was 1997 when we started it now, when we talked about it, it was 1997. We were due to start in the January of 98. Boxing Day 97, my then wife's dad died. And that blew a hole in my uh, my life for a bit because um, I had to support her and the family. So I was going to co-produce with Jan. I had to call him and say, my wife's dad's died. I'm just going to have to step back. I'm going to have to step out of this. I can't stay at the studio later than a certain time. I'm just going to, we've got a great pair of assistants. Well, we had an assistant. So Dan Sprigg was kind of engineering for Jan and then Don Morley, who had basically sat there while I played keyboards on the previous one. Mm. He, he assisted Dan. Um, and it, it was going okay. Um, so I, I was like dipping in and out. Now about three weeks in, I had to say to my wife, um, I think, are you all right? Like maybe she was starting to say, you know, if you need to go back in, you're, you, you know, you're, you've got to do your job. Mm. Uh, I'd got a sense that stuff was already starting to go south. So I, um, I got myself back in the situation, but even from the first day <laughs> when Yan turned up, he was playing Dr. Feelgood by Motley Crue um, oh as yeah. like the epitome of a great drum sound, yep. which, when you've heard Nick attack people for drum sounds, you'd probably not want to do that. No. <laughs> so that's, that's him being a bit tone deaf, unfortunately, on that one there. I mean, Nick's yeah. drumming, nobody sounds like Nick, really, do they? You know, no, so, exactly. And, and I think with um, with that, you know, they were downstairs. I remember having to walk into into the li- uh, live room, and I'd say to the guys, "Just knock off the mics a second. and I'd go and I'd chat with Nick. And we we really bonded because I, you know, that's why I'm laughing about it from the fact that I was this Pink Floyd prog rocky person that was now having to be the confidant to a black metal band. Mm. Just it, again, it made me, you know, like, wow, maybe I, I am cut out for this. And and Nick was really passionate. We used to laugh. He's like, oh, I just want me 
drums to sound like fucking cannons. And he mm. meant it. He wanted yep. them to be big. But he went into self-sabotage on that album because he, he walked in a few times and he said, where's the razor blades? I'm going to fucking slash the tape. Because um, it's like he was so distressed by what this was turning into. Um, and I think ultimately, yes, Jan was the wrong choice and he was out of his depth to deal with them. Why was Jan then even – who selected him and why? Because, he, okay, so here's an important point. If you didn't have yeah. a pedigree at the time, which is, I would say mm. bullshit, to be frank with you, you just come from <laughs> producing a UB40 album. Well, um, yeah. But, and then this is what was – this is what mm. led up to that point within sort of a 12-month yes. period. What had yeah. Jan done to earn the right to sit well, in the they, producer's chair? Well, we, this is what we used to laugh at. It was one of those – you know where you get a young producer trying to get loads of credits and they say, um, I've I've worked with – and there'll be one name and then there'll be a few others that you don't know. And then they say, and all, and others. And it means, mm. yeah, you basically worked, you've been in the room where, I don't know, Peter Andre came in and did a vocal. <laughs> underneath, <laughs> underneath that is some local bar bands and you've worked with nobody else. So he would say, yeah, yeah. I worked with, uh, when I did Therian and Lacrimosa and all the yeah. others. And this became the thing we used to just go and all the others because he didn't really have a pedigree. Um, but that's record labels. They they need to hang their their thing on something. I mean, God forbid Sabbath may have done that with Rick Rubin. You know, it's oh God, like, oh look, so, like you can get me talking for hours about the, the uselessness <laughs> of Rick Rubin. But this Jesus. is the point. It's it's like it. Sometimes the labels need to have that. Um, they have to have that thing that says, "Look who they're working with." It's PR worthy. And yeah. um, and I feel it was that, and I I didn't really fight because I knew at some point I'd have an involvement because it couldn't go on. I just didn't realise it would be three weeks in. Um, and by this time, um, Les Les Smith yeah. had uh, turned up. He was the antithesis of um, <laughs> of Greg. He was funny. He was. I had him set up in a room next to me. I had like my my tech room stroke um, office at the studio and we had another smaller tech room. So we set him up with a um, a keyboard workstation and um, a sequencer. So he was able to take rough mixes and work on all the orchestrations. And he and I would just spend most of the time laughing about stupid shit. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> he, had, he had great ideas for that album. Um, they were taking it a little bit less orchestral. It was definitely going to be harder. Excuse me. Um, and um, again, it kind of started okay once we'd got Nick in the fray. But I think the problem is, you know, production's a real psychology job. You've got to give the artist absolutely what they need to hear to get the best out of them, even if you don't agree that it's best sonically. If you get that performance out of them, you can argue the rest of it later. If you try to be clever and change something on them, they know, they believe wholeheartedly in the sound that they're asking for. Um, Dio, when I recorded him, the mm. U87 was the last mic I would have ever put on him, but it really? was the mic he wanted. Yeah, it was. He's, he had such a hard, harsh voice. I'd have gone for something way smoother, but he liked the U87 in front of him. He liked to hear the U87 coming through his cans. Therefore, you give Dio what he wants. 
and then you deal great, with it great afterwards. sounding album the devil you know man you did such a good it's, job with that one it, oh, it's one of my proudest achievements it yeah. is it's it's it was so much fun i mean you can it's hear right the fun dusk. yeah it's right up there with what yeah. you did on dusk man it's yeah it's it was a big sounding record it was you know we loved we loved doing it um we we had a long stint of writing sessions i got to know ronnie like he was a second dad it was just awesome you know and and that's what you do you go i'm here because of them so i'm not gonna try and be clever and that's mm. that's i think where where you've got to have this understanding with um with the the artist it's like give nick what he wants if he doesn't like something don't try and sneak it back in <laughs> Because you're just being a cunt if you do that. You know, you undermine the artist and then he's not on your side at all. Did, did you, know, you find uh, that it got really combative with Yarn though? Mm, yeah, massively. Um, I mean, it was a, it was at um they got to lo- loggerheads quite a lot. I mean, Nick would have had he had he not been pulled away from the um probably Stuart would have been the guy that um that would have stepped in with me and just gone, Nick, just not worth it, mate. You know, this is, you put so much work into it. He would have cut the tape. He'd have taken a razor blade to it. I destroyed no the work. He, he was, told me the same was, thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was he really was fucked off. Yeah. yeah. Um, I remember him taking me out to his car. I mean, again, you know, the confidant, um, we, we, he, he parked his car up the road and he goes, can you, have you got 10 minutes? I went, yeah, what are you, you're going to push me into a canal? He goes, no, mate. We went in his car and we listened to a load of tracks on his cassette player in his car. He said, that's what I want this to sound like. And I went, well, yeah. Why why isn't it? You know, well, because of that, whatever, you know. And I'm like, okay, probably a translation issue, mate. Let's go back and see what we can do. And, you know, you'd you'd paper over the cracks a bit and then Jan will pull something stupid. And... um, I don't think it was deliberate. I just think they were just, they didn't see it the same way. And quite honestly, I mean, in terms of Danny, I think Danny mostly just cared about getting his stories across. He's not you a know, songwriter. He, so he, he he's a poet and a lyricist. That's what yeah. he does. So he relies Precisely. on these extraordinary musicians. Yeah. Like, I mean, that triumvirate on cruelty is probably the best uh, trio of songwriters ever in the history of extreme mm-hmm. metal being Stuart, yeah. Nick Barker and Liz Smith. You get those yeah. three together, you can pretty much just leave them alone and you just help when you need to help. And I think from the sounds of things, Danny almost just did that. Is that your take he on did. things? Yeah, he was he was great. I mean, he was, um, he would, I, you know, again, he'd go up to my office, he'd be working on lyrics and out would come these, he was writing for Terrorizer magazine as well. So he was doing all these handwritten mm-hmm. articles for Terrorizer with his own cartoons. And he was telling me about the guy that had been arrested for wearing one of the Jesus is a cunt shirts. Uh, he presented me with a Jesus is a cunt shirt at the end. He says, we haven't got many of these left. He said, but you deserve this. And I've still got it. It's fucking brilliant. I do it to annoy people now. Um, and um, I mean, again, I got on well with everybody. I really did because mm. they individually, even together, they were great. But what made see when, I, when when we first started talking, I said about Stuart. What made me laugh was he would just very calmly. I think John Jean. I never yeah, remember John. what their fucking names were. Um, <laughs> I think he he hadn't put as much effort into practicing as he possibly could have. So Stuart was um, trying to coax him through a fairly simple riff, probably on Cruelty Brought the Orchids, because that was a great riff. 
And um, and I remember Stuart just almost, I thought I was in trouble. I just popped in. This was while I was not heavily involved. And he just, um, he stormed over to me. I went, what's up, mate? He goes, mate, you need a room in here where you can just go and break things. He said, because if, if you, if you had that, I probably wouldn't want to break the other guitarist in this band. <laughs> and I was just like, he was so calm, but fuming mm. inside because it's like, I've put heart and soul into this. Why Why hasn't the other guy? Um, yeah, well, Nick and, described um, him as, as blacky useless. Would you, <laughs> do you understand? <laughs> do you understand why you, I mean, do you, I mean, you were there, you're the guy, right? So you can obviously understand why he was called that. I just think you know everybody gets. Um, uh, I don't. I don't want to be be the guy that that keeps avoiding questions. But I think in the heat of passion, <laughs> you just see people as fucking useless, don't you? You're like, look, I've put my effort in for this. You haven't. The only excuse is that you haven't you haven't practiced. You haven't put time and effort into this. You know, start. You know, what is it they say? Um, shit or get off the pot. Yeah. And, but did John, um, and did John track any? Did jo- sorry? Did John track any of the guitars on that album, <laughs> Cruelty, or was it all Stuart? Oh, I could imagine he probably did. But you know, back in those days, it, 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 there's every chance that um, that something would have got re-recorded. I mean, I can't remember. Joe Barisi said something. I was watching a video with him. He's a mate of mine, and he was he was laughing about. Um, I think he calls it Doctor Midnight. Um, if if you're in trouble, call Doctor Midnight. Doctor Midnight is the guy that comes in when the rest of the band have gone home and retracks all the shit they couldn't play. And yeah. um, and there was a bit of Doctor Midnight would go on. Um, it happens on uh, every session. It does. So, I know. Look, yeah, Steve Lukather has alluded to doing some records that are very very big. He won't say I'm who surprised. which records he's done. But, I'm surprised yeah. he hasn't said who because he throws everybody under the bus. He's hilarious. Yeah, well, him, Steve Vai, I think, did quite a few. Yeah. There are some unknown guys that, you know, mm. I won't say which bands, just for the threat of libel yeah. or whatever it is, but, you know, yes. but I hear I hear some of these very, let's just say, I hear some of the more prominent punk, pop punk bands, you know, yeah. that's not them. No. You know, no, it's, um, yeah, it's quite, quite interesting. I mean, ultimately, sometimes it's like, we're either going to destroy this person's confidence or we're just going to get the best out of them. And again, remember this is um, this what ninety ninety eight? Yeah, would be ninety. Yep. Yeah, so it was ninety eight. We were tracking that. We weren't really still into Pro Tools. We were on tape. So wow. the ability to shift. We did use Pro Tools. We had an eight track Pro Tools system on that album, um, and we did the odd bit of syncing stuff up to that to do some editing. But there was no way we were getting into editing. It was mainly vocal editing, if anything. It was like to to bounce, you know, piece backing vocals together. We may have been running out of tracks, to be honest. Mm. Um, so all the guitars had to be spot on. And if um, if John wasn't um, doing it, there would have been re-records. Yeah. Well, Nick, so. Nick threatened him with violence. You know that. Nick, Nick he threatens everybody with violence. <laughs> Except me, actually. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Go. Well, because when you look at it, yeah, Nick's a fucking incredible drummer. I mean, when um, when Andy Sneap did the um, one of his um, 
superior drummer or easy drummer packs nick was the guy that did all the midi stuff on it oh shit because really? he's okay. like you know all the blast beats everything that is to do with that metal metal machine i think it's called barker okay. was the the guy on it and mm. um he's incredibly respected uh he's a stunning drummer and that's because he practices and this is my issue. There's, there's, because uh, I, I mentor uh, production students. And my biggest issue with anybody is, is fucking laziness. It's right. like I had to put the work in. So no. if you, if you don't want to know, don't be here, but certainly don't hold the process up. And I can imagine the frustrations. Um, plus, it was a big thing, wasn't it? I mean, it was like it was the first album they'd written together without any previous um, songwriting input from the previous incarnation, it was following up a fucking brilliant album. It was introducing a new member, two new members probably. Well, just probably one actually, Les. Um, mm -hmm. Spot on. It needed to be big. And um, I'm, I'm a bit saddened I didn't get a crack at the remix but because I'd have loved doing that. Well, that's the question but, that I had for you. Why on earth? I mean, look, I've got a, a few issues with Danny. Everything else aside, whatever, he can run the band as he sees yeah. fit. But I, I've got to be frank, he didn't write Cruelty. Stuart did. No. Stuart, Nick and Les yeah. wrote Cruelty. Mm. And it really, he needed to get somebody in who was there to pick mm. apart the parts. And and at the time, this is the thing about we're all getting a bit older, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm, I mean, Stu's no longer with us. No. The one guy who could have helped you oversee the sessions to actually mm. remint the remint the tracks in a way that Nick would yeah. have felt comfortable. Sarah, I mean, let's not forget yeah. Sarah. She would have felt better about it all, no doubt, if she was included. But he went ahead and did it by himself. The question is why. Well, I guess I guess eventually you get to a point where you work with certain people. I mean, I I hadn't I hadn't seen him for decades, um, and there's no ill feelings between us it was it, we just grinned and grinned when we were chatting about stuff um like a couple of years ago um he asked if i'd heard it and i said yeah i actually think it sounds heavier than the original i said as long as you're pleased with it i'm happy um i had had calls with Stuart. he was getting quite anxious and um um he I think he was I think he was trying to pitch for me to be involved. But I said, Stu, I said, you might want to let it go. You know, the really mm. if it's a done thing, um, you might be just opening up a can of worms that I don't know. I think he and Nick had spoken a lot about it. Um I met Julie Weir, who was in charge of um I think she's still music for nations or so anyway she was she's to do with um was to do with the repackaging she's mm. I, I first met her when i was doing a record years ago with kill to this with andy sneep um oh, she yeah. was honoring that and um and i spoke to her at the sabbath museum exhibit a few years ago um when they they had their sort of 50th anniversary thing and um I said, oh, I said, I've been speaking to a couple of the Cradle of Filth guys. She goes, oh, she goes, there's nothing will ever make them talk. She said, it's a, it's just a nightmare. Mm. Um, she says, it's almost, I, I mean, I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but I get the feeling she was happy when it was, the remix was done and out. Yeah. Because but there's been, was, there's been no mea culpa from Danny toward those three. You know that I'll, no. I'll leave Les out of it because I understand he does tour managing and a few other things for the group these yes. days. But yeah. oh, look, you know, I, I've spoken to Stu and Nick off the mm. record a few times now. And Stu and I, 
uh, I suppose we were, I'd like to think we were mates, you know. Yeah. And um, our conversation continued well on, well after our our four hour long conversation was posted <laughs> as the podcast episode. And yeah. when I hit when I hit him up and I said, "Look, it's the fucking thing is out." It's there, mm. and he said, "Mate, it's sadly predictable." That was his term, mm. and I thought, "You poor bastard." Mm. I got to say, I really, I, I felt for him. I felt for Nick in particular because mm. I know how important it was for him to have some say in what was going yeah. on. And well, it's not just about the music. The thing is, we could have had. I understand that likely there were photos taken within the rehearsal studio of the band getting their shit together and understanding, you know, making nice with the arrangements mm. that Stu was coming up with. There was um, fo- uh, there was liner notes that should have been contributed. There should have been mm. a narrative that wrapped around like a box set, you know, something really needy yeah. and something yeah. the fans like me would go, hey, here it is, you know. I mean, that's because yeah. my interest in the band virtually stopped dead on a dime after that album came out and Stuart right. left the band. Yeah. So. But there was that opportunity, and I just, I, I, if I ever speak to Dan, and it's highly unlikely, to be honest with you, at this point, that I'd even take an opportunity, even if he approached me. Given, mm. I don't think he would anyway. By the way, I'm just talking pie in the sky stuff mm. now. But given the volume of conversations that I've had with people, cradle of mm. filth alumni and important people like you, you know, mm. I've spoken to Nigel Wingrove last week. You know, I mean, these are people who who, who launched the bands. Yeah, they're they're creative. They're holy. They're all of the creative artifacts from their imagination. Yeah. You know, the band was going along on a certain trajectory and then it just sort of blew apart after Midian and from Midian onwards. And it, it's cruelty that re release, that re mistressing, as he called it, Danny called it, was right. and <laughs> well, it was an opportunity to get all of the very important players back into one room, even, even virtually, yeah. so to speak, mm. and to say, what do you think? Here's an opportunity to give old fans like me, us in our 40s, with kids, wives, careers, mortgages, all the bullshit, meaning the mm. mortgages, the you know, that's the bullshit part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff would give us an opportunity um, to have something, a keepsake from that era again, you know, because the band yeah. has been very vociferous, as you know, about, you know, not being satisfied. The, the, the key players yeah. are not satisfied yeah. with what happened back then. Mm. Yeah, it is a shame. I mean, it's um, it happens again and again, doesn't it? I'm, I mean, I've been involved in um, in remixing the the hated Sabbath album Forbidden. Um, you know, we went right back to the multi tracks to remix that. Wow. Because it, so you're doing that now, right now, aren't you? I did that. I did that. Um, actually, I did it about two or three years ago. Um, oh right, but it's, okay. got, it's got to come out as a part of a box set with all the Tony Martin stuff. So mm. we went back. We went back to 48-track analog, had it transferred. We actually had it transferred back in about 2009, but then for some reason we ended up doing a Black Sabbath reunion with Ozzy. Um, but we got around to it, and it, it sounded great, you know. And, and that was a difficult one because um, uh, Cozy wasn't there, you know. Oh, I was going to ask you about Cozy. Thank you for bringing him up. God bless oh, him. Oh, man. Do you know what? Because I, I never met him. Um, but I know he and Tony were really, really, really good friends. And Jeff Nichols had died as well. So there's two, two mm. out of the five people who were no longer there. And um, and I just used to sit there grinning because I'm like, this is like a masterclass in symbol work. If if something needed punctuating, oh, you guarantee Cozy yeah. had a symbol for it. Mm. And <laughs> and I loved doing that album. And I think we've done it justice. Um, but there's there's still stuff, you know, Tony Martin um feels very aggrieved about the way he was talked about during the you know in the autobiographies and um and tony um 
Uh, Neil Murray was great. That was a good, what a fucking bass player, you know. He mm. he went full geezer on that. That never came across yep. on the original. So I was kind of like turning it into what would it sound like if I'd got hold of it back in 94? Just bring mm. it up to date enough, um, not trying to be too clever with it and just make it sound big, wide and powerful. And now even the iced tea rap in the first song mm. sounds huge because it's, part of a massive massive section so we still haven't got it out but the amount of stuff that goes backwards and forwards between people um that essentially wants to be avoided you know it's like just let, let it let it be what it is um I think it's a difficult one because again, it's that thing of Tony's in charge of this lot. And and I love what we've done on it. And he's very proud of it. Cause he, he's been very vocal about hating that album. And yet he's like, this is what it should have sounded like. Now there's quite a few people have got their asses in their hands about um, all the stories as to why it didn't sound like that in the first place. So it's very difficult to navigate something that's a similar age to cruelty if you think about it absolutely same um, era yeah so it's it's a it's a hard one to um to navigate um i wouldn't want to be in a band with any of those people um i wouldn't want to be, have been in a band with cradle of filth knowing the the high tempers that go on and um that the arguments and i think you know, I'm not again i'm not supporting anybody particularly but because of all the stuff that i've gone through over the years seeing it from danny's side he may be in a place now where his vehicle is him and it's a, a cast of um, paid musicians who do his bidding and he gets to go out every night and be Danny Phils. And yeah, as a I result, have, he, he, he's got his that. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just said, I know Paula Linda. I don't know him well, right. but we talk occasionally. No. And you know, Paula Linda. Was he, in the, he was the original guitarist wasn't he yeah yes, and, I'm, right. and i'm talking okay. to paul ryan this week oh, so great. paul ryan wrote principal okay and, I th and so paul ryan I, this is how I, I mean i've got yet to ask paul about this but my understanding mm. is paul wrote principal and right. paula lender wrote dusk right okay um, now I, I could be wrong but i've got to, i've got to i've got to go back and mm. listen to my conversation with paula lender just to confirm yeah. some of that but paul yeah look <laughs> There's a lot that I can't say because Paul's asking, not Paul, the lender's mm. asking not to share it. He wants, mm. okay, what I will say is Paul wants the entire thing behind him. Yes. Paul, the lender wants the entire thing behind him. Yeah. That should tell anybody with a brain all they need to know. Yeah, okay? precisely. But he was he was not a hired gun. He was the songwriter in the group alongside yes. Stuart. They just were never in the band yeah. together. Yeah. And for, for him to say that after appearing on, I, I've long said that without Without Stuart, the band doesn't break large. Without Paul Alender, Danny mm. doesn't have a career. Yeah. Okay. Paul, did Paul come back into the band? Is that is that my correct. understanding? He, he yes. wrote Midian. Yeah, he wrote Midian. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So he did that, but then I think he's. Oh, I'm trying to think what I can say without you know offending. No, I don't. I'm just interested in offending Paul. <laughs> it's you know it's a but yeah, look, the, the bottom line is Paul's contributions a bit like Stuart. They weren't. Yeah. You know, there's 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 okay. Nick has spoken about it. The financial side of it. 
Yeah. He wanted to audit the band when he left and he right. wished that he'd stayed on for another few months and he wished he, Stuart and Les, had left it a block, as a block, mm. engaged solicitors and audited what went on in the books. That's a big issue, mate, that one right, right. there. Right. Okay. okay. That's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah. And and, and I really feel for them on that front. I mean, if you work your mm. ass off, as, as they've clearly done, creating an album, which is all time. I mean, this is an album that's going to be picked up, in, in my view, 100 years' time by... In all these bands like Satyricon, Emperor, Cradle of Filth, mate, they're, mm. gonna, they're like Metallica and Iron Maiden. And mm. uh, you know how we listen to BB King records and those old yeah. those old blues records from the 40s, 50s, 60s and stuff, you know? That's what this is going to be. It's right. just going to continue to be – it's continuously influential. The only thing that's going to change is the influence of technology and how that music is interpreted by, by yeah. new musicians, if you like. And yeah. you've got these original gangsters like Nick and Stu who are – I'm trying to do in in part what I'm trying to do is actually bring their story to life mm. to ensure that their name isn't lost to history and they're not just hired guns because they're far from yeah. that. They're the writers. They're yes. the songwriters. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and that's what I think. I think since since the um, the last time I did anything with them, which would have been the the um, from the Cradle EP, mm. um, it sort of felt like every time you saw a new incarnation there was just another bunch of faceless people behind danny 40 40 plus tenured musicians at this point it's the most of any band that is still relevant wow that is more than an incredible statistic yeah yeah (laughs) it's almost as bad as journey actually but there you go (laughs) oh but aren't they a shamozzle these days aren't they just a bloody you know a dysfunctional unit that I can't. Here's the thing about mm. this, Mike. Why that? Why on earth do the fans keep turning up and supporting a version of Journey and Foreigner and these legacy acts? I don't know. I mean, you know, I've got some, some, um, I won't go too deep into it, but look at what goes on with KK and um, Priest. You know, it's like, oh, let, let, yeah. the, let the band do what they do, let him do what he does, KK shut up and just stop, stop stirring the shit because. Richie brought back an incredible um, amount of energy into that band on Redeemer of Souls. Mm. Um, it went stratospherically better on um, Firepower, mm. and it gave them a, a jumping-off point to go for another few years. And in all the way in the background, you've got this battle going on between KK and them and um, sniping and negative energy and it divides the fans you know i'm a pink floyd fan i've just everybody's going what do you think about roger waters remixing yeah. dark side of the moon mm-hmm. i said he's doing it to wind gilmore up does nobody yeah. get this you know for fuck's sake i they, understood they, that they, straight away i know i'm yeah. so glad you said that yeah yeah I, they're just pissing I, each other off <laughs> totally i've got um i've got Thankfully, my favourite album by them is is uh, Animals. It's a masterpiece. It's Pink Same Floyd. Well. It's brilliant. They remixed Animals in 2018. It came out at the end of last year because they spent four years fighting about the fucking credits. Mm. And if that doesn't say band into politics, you know, Gilmore and Waters were fighting during the pandemic because Gilmore, Waters said, I don't know why Gilmore won't let me post videos up of stuff I do for Pink Floyd. You know, I'm doing recuts of Mother acoustically. I'm putting them mm. up on his website and all we get is his and, his and Polly's fucking son re- reading poetry, you know, and it's like, 
<laughs> Maybe the Floyd fans would prefer to see Waters on there. And you just can't, you can't believe the, the I mean, it's passion, isn't it? It's fanatical. Uh, you know, fans are fanatical, mm. but that's what happens. And I, I have favourite eras of bands and... I don't think that anybody is beyond reproach. Um, I think Queen made some absolute horror stories of records, but they're still <laughs> one of my favourite bands. Rush, horror stories of records, but they're still another of my favourite bands. Pink Floyd, I like from metal to probably animals. The Wall and the Final Cut were okay for me. It doesn't make me not a fan. I just have a particular period where they resonated with what I did. If you've got bands that last 40 50 years 30 years whatever they're gonna win and lose fans aren't they mm. and all they can do is be what they need to be at that time um and i think that's possibly what's so so sad about something like cruelty is they were trying their hardest to be the best they could at that time and the stars just didn't align and it set them off on some weird course where you know by the time we got to cut the the EP. We we had two drummers on that EP. Um, Was Sargentson and Adrian yeah, Lanson from At the Gates? That's Great. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that was cut two two separate two, uh, stints up at Bar Street, and it was like, who have we got this time? And then I can't even remember if Stuart was involved in all those recordings or not. Nick had obviously gone. Um, it was like, oh, that's a shame. And then I think Les was yeah, getting he wrote pissed the originals. off. Yeah, he wrote the original yeah. tunes that were on there and, and played and played also on the covers there. But it was uh, right. It was a uh, he. He did not want that. According to to Stuart, someone opened his quote. I think is uh, not verbatim, but is that EP came out because someone opened their fucking trap to the record company. Those right. songs should have been the original songs should have been part of. And here's the thing, and this is where I think I was. This is where I start thinking about where this band could have gone with your involvement. Yeah. A Clive Barker concept album right there, okay, right. with with the two original, I think it's one original song uh, on that on that EP there. I mean, the, the EP right. isn't, I mean, it's. I'm not saying it's forgettable. The tunes that Stuart mm. wrote on it, fantastic. Mm. He was taking it in a more hardcore punk style direction with the mm. black metal influence in it, but it just didn't happen and it was, I mean, it was it had a live outtake a live outtake of funeral in carpathia on it like mm. for god's sakes i mean you can't improve on the original so don't try and the band... well the only thing I, the thing I, I liked about it was getting danny to actually have to sing something on sleepless we were wetting ourselves because it was like he had to actually sing a melody and the yeah. giggling that was going on i mean you know he was again he was fun and we we used to stick him in the um in the one of the booths at Park Street, and he, I think he he was on his red wine, so we'd have him in there, and he was getting more and more uh, relaxed. Um, and Dan Sprigg was doing it with me, and we I always insisted on having a keyboard sampler in the room so I could bring up sound effects, and mm. um, and it was usually farts because I'm childish, and it would be. <laughs> it, we stopped giving Danny feedback about his singing. We would just play different farts depending on whether he'd done a good take oh, or not. Yeah. And they'd get more and more reverbed out as the night went on, and we are in fits of giggles. <laughs> and he's like, he's in the other room going, I think I'm going to be sick here. I feel like I'm in a wet fart chamber, you know. <laughs> it was good fun. Um, and we, I mean, I don't know if you know, we used to call him 3PO. Um, 
because that hasn't come up. Tell me the story. That's oh great, god, yeah, I've told I've told a load of people that um, in public. He thinks we call him R two D two because he's um, he's quite short, but we didn't. We used to call him three PO because he would get because um, you you've probably heard him talk. He, he talks a little bit like that, and um, he's so very sort once, of yeah. clipped. And so he's he's like, um, when are we going to be able to do my vocals? I think it's about time we did my vocals. And I'm like, all right, calm down, three PO. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart nearly spat the dub. He was pissing himself. Um, so for for me, he's always been three PO. And um, mm. and I guess if you sort of if you take that, it's like. Um, you you know when you you being bullied you imagine you're bully naked with you know with a, or with a woman's dress on or something suddenly it's like it minimizes their effect on you he never intimidated me i as i say i always got on really well with danny um but i could see that god i wouldn't want to be part of that crowd and um yeah well he's he's, he's a bit of a I, i've described him as a napoleon type yeah okay yeah, yeah. and it, it just seems to fit and I, 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 the the band has succeeded. All things considered, despite itself. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They've. Um, there's a lot of bands like that. Well, again, parallel with Priest. They. Mm. I mean, they. How they're still going, considering what happens to try and fuck themselves up. It's insane, isn't it? Um, well, I can don't. You answer- can you answer the, the question? Don't answer it. I'll edit this out if you need me to. No okay. dramas whatsoever. But um, did Glenn play on Firepower? Yes, he did. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with Glenn. Um, he'd had, I don't know if it, he had had an, he'd had an accident, which I don't think ever made it into the press, but he, he struggled to walk up and down the stairs. Mm-hmm. The control room was upstairs. So we set up a secondary control room where he and I would work through his guitar parts because he'd written an awful lot of the riffs. So we sat there and um, kind of coaxed him through doing it. And so I spent a lot of time on Firepower working with him just to make sure he he got the important riffs done. He did a lot of the solos as well. He wasn't in a good state, but when he because the problem with Parkinson's is you have good days and bad days. Yeah. So and the more you try, the more frustrated you get and the more exacerbates the problem. So when he was doing when he was having a bad day, he was he's very stubborn, Glenn. And I would say, Why don't we just go for a walk down the river? You know, and he, oh, I've got to get this guitar part done, knowing full well that it was never going to happen. And then I'd come back the next day and say, should we have another go at that? And he'd be energised in the morning and he'd, he'd be brilliant. So it was probably the last time he really, really did creatively play properly and with passion. But again, that's that's 2017. That's coming up five years ago. So it's degenerated mm-hmm. quite a lot in that time. Um, but he's, you know, yeah. he's dogged in his determination to make it happen. And he does it with a real... He's a pain in the ass because he's got a really funny sense of humour. There's a little glint in his eye. He t- one day I walked in the control room because um, uh, I, I would say to Andy and Tom, Tom Allen, I'd say, fucking please take him <laughs> off my hands for half an hour. I'm going to have another breakdown because my breakdown was pretty much as a result of the previous album. It was, oh, a, it was, a, long peri- it was a long period of time and events yeah. leading up to it, but the, the thing that broke was... Uh, at the end of that album. So I always say, you nearly fucking killed me because you're yeah, ever going to try and kill you again, Mike. Um, we want you on board. Anyway, so he 
I remember the one day he'd um they they got him upstairs and I thought, oh great, I'm just gonna it's gonna go for a walk myself because he's got a beautiful farm um on a river in Worcestershire. So mm. I went for a little walk and uh, his dog came along, Rufus. And uh, I came back and I thought, right, I'll go and see what's going on upstairs. And I remember fucking, he's um, he's in the control room and he's like, play it again. And they're playing this song that they put heart and soul into with all these backing vocals and they'd done a real top job on it. And, and at the end of the playback, Glenn just goes, well, I, I'm just not, I don't think it's a priest song. And Jesus, uh, yeah. they were all like, oh, what do you mean? He goes, it just, it sounds like some, that. He goes, I know we all like Queen. He says, but this is like Queen do musical theatre. He said, I just don't think it's us. And they were so dejected. And he stood up quite, quite, um, uh, he was he was quite bad on his feet at that point. And he, he stood up and walked out of the room. He said, come on, Mike. He goes, that'll teach him to fucking say they don't like my solo and burst out laughing. And <laughs> I mean, he still got his own way because the song didn't make it. But I said, I knew that was what you were doing. You can't. And he just pissed himself. And they were all like, it's not funny, you know. And, um, but it, it's that kind of thing, you know. He was a great, is a great guy. Um, and um, and it's shocking what's happened to him. And and equally frustrating, you know. I mean, I, I remember sitting there going, Glenn, don't knock yourself about with this. Um, you know, thinking, my God, he's sat here. This is beautiful. This is This is a dream place to live. It's like where he wanted to retire. And the one thing that gave him this place is being taken away from him, the ability to play. And, um, you know, yes, that gave uh, him the success and the money. And it's really sad. Mm. Um, so we did everything we could to make sure that he appeared on that album as much as possible. And it, it really is his last hurrah. I don't, I can't imagine, I'm not doing anything on the new album. I, I talk to Sneep a lot. Um, they've been doing Sorry, a lot of come, recording. How come you're not doing? How come you're not involved? They in the bought, well, Andy's Andy's out on the road with them all the time. Um, and oh, so they're doing because it on of the, the road, are they? Well, the pandemic hit, um, so they had they've had times where they got together for songwriting sessions, and then um, I think during production rehearsal times they've been out in the states, so they've gone in and they've done recordings, and so they've been able to do a lot of it to coincide with people's visas because it's a band that's made up of people living in in America with British passports and UK okay. with American right. passports. So yeah. it's difficult to pull a band like that together for any period of time. So it makes sense to have them on the road. Um, and when they're all in the same town together, you can be quite efficient, you know, um, yeah. while stuff's being done. So, um, so as far as I know, it's, um, it's in progress. Um, I think, I think, Last time I heard, Andy was talking about vocals. So I think he was possibly going to go out to do them at Rob's because, um, okay. yeah, you know, it's, well, Rob's it's, still in San Diego from memory, isn't he? Is he's right? in, he's... Um, no, he's out in um, Scottsdale. He, he had oh, a place in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he did. He did. He had two houses, but the one he kept was in Scottsdale. <laughs> okay, um, gotcha. He's great, Rob. Really good. He's, um, well, they're all funny as always. <laughs> Rob is considered the voice of metal, and and, and but you yeah. not just worked with Rob, you've worked with Ronnie as well. So you've worked with the two guys. I mean, the yeah, only and other Gil one, you... Gillen as well. Yeah, uh, fantastic. I, yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's just Bruce, isn't it? Dickinson that I'd probably haven't had anything to do with. Um, I don't know whether you're missing out on much there. Apparently, is a bit of no. Else, to be honest, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll I'll be diplomatic, and I mean it diplomatically because I don't have any axe to grind. I just uh, I they weren't one of the bands I listened to, so they're not on my radar. Mm. I did have the pleasure of working with Nico on a project. He was ace. It was really good fun. Um, but yeah, I just I've never really been a Maiden fan, so it just hasn't hasn't been anything that I would be that upset about losing out on. But Gillen was the first rock voice I ever heard because he was Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar, and we mm. battered that album to death when I was growing up. Um, so that was an odd one. And uh, Ronnie and um, and Rob and and Glenn Hughes as well. I mean, just insane singers. All Glenn- of them. Is Glenn out of all of them? I've spoken to Glenn before, and he just strikes me as a as a lovely fella. Is he the one you'd work with again in a heartbeat? I'd work with all of them well, if I could. Um, mm. I, I, I Ronnie would have been the one actually because he was just so powerful. He was a force of nature. He was a pocket powerhouse. His his lyrics came from the heart. He wasn't trying to be clever. He just wrote stories. And then he wrote melodies to go with them, and and then he delivered. And it was like, fuck, I've got one handwritten set of lyrics. I was showing Mariana the other day. I was going through some old files, wow. and I've got Beautiful. a set of yeah. handwritten lyrics from what was at the time called Rock and Roll Jesus, but it had to be changed to Rock and Roll Angel. So I've got the original um, things, and they were just literally written on the back of a packing slip hmm. for, um, for some gear we were having delivered to the studio. Uh, all of them were just fantastic. I mean, Ian's got a different voice. Rob's got a different range and a massive Queen fan. So we we always try to hit the what would Freddie do thing. And um, and Ronnie was very just he was he was really the voice. Um, so they all just did stuff so differently, but their their um, their professionalism. It's, I suppose professionalism probably isn't even something that they would consider. It's just Ronnie once said, it's my job. I sing. I'm the singer in the band. I better be good. So I will make sure that I'm able to sing. So he sang at every opportunity. He he did two days on. He, I think he probably balked at three days towards the end, but he would do five nights a week if he could. You know, mm. he, he just he was just ultimately totally in control of um what he did and they're all the same they've been doing it for so long they don't know anything else and um it's interesting though mike the vivian campbell has rarely had anything nice to say all things yeah. considered about dio i mean he's the guy who wrote holy diver and shit wrote the music i mean a bit like Stuart. Yeah. he's the Stuart to dio yes. yeah Do, can, can you understand his perspective at all after spending so much time with ronnie yeah, I mean, I always say I'm lucky I've worked with these people in the twilight years of their careers because I can yeah. imagine how they could have been at the height of all of the the drugs and the drink and the fame um, and youth. If you look at but look back to like '96 with the um, the filth guys, um, that they could have easily. 30 years later, being a pleasant band, still 
creating incredible stuff like the Uriah Heaps and the Sabbaths and the priests mm. of this world as a single unit. Um, you know, I mean, again, Maiden, they've, they've had their, their face changes a bit, uh, probably the least out of all of them. I still think they've got one guitarist too many. <laughs> oh, Yannick, it's Yannick like could a tribute tomorrow. show. Yeah, yeah Yannick could a, a, probably a lovely guy, and let's face it, he's written yeah. some of their some of their better songs yeah. of the post millennium. But if he if he disappeared tomorrow, most of the fans wouldn't give a shit. No, exactly. Um, so I, I'm sort of like, yeah, um, yeah. I I can see why why Ronnie and and Vivian would have fallen out because it's it's an incredibly emotive subject songwriting. Because it's even more so today because nobody gets paid. Well, people get paid royalties, but on what? You know, yeah. when when you used to make records, you'd go, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll settle for three quarters of a point. You know, this might make, sell hundreds of thousands. Great. Nowadays, points don't mean anything. Oh, Songwriting. Some bullshit, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so songwriting is where it's at. And if you feel you've been fucked over on songwriting, it really hurts. Yeah, so and, can... and that's been some of the issue with the cradle guys, you know, and that's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. um I mean, you've got to look at Paul Alender. I mean, he's driving a truck in the Midwest of the bloody United States at the moment. Wow. You know that? That's where he's ended up. It's a hell wow. of a long way from where he started. And with the talent yeah. that he's got, mind Oh, you. totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's horrible. I think the business always gets in the way. I mean, you know that that biblical saying, "Money is the root of all evil." Every fucking time. Mm. I made peace years ago that um, that I will. Well, I think I think having a near death experience does it to you. You're like, okay, I get that now that you can't take it with you. So try and enjoy life as much as you can. I'm going to sound like the keyboard player from Spinal Tap now. Have a good time all the time. <laughs> but you know, it's true, isn't it? You just just do. Get yeah. get through life without what's what are the three things? There's a guy, there's a mixing guy out in Nashville, and he just said, Don't don't cheat, don't lie, and do what you said you were gonna fucking do. And if you get mm. on going through life like that, you probably have friends at the end and have mm. had a good life experience. And I mean my thing is to try and leave a legacy of stuff that people will love for years. And um, so far, I've done that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm really Incredible proud work. of what I've done. And I'm, I, you know, I'm like, I remember being able to um, to give my kids and, and Mariana when I mixed the the final Black Sabbath show for record and for cinema. Mm. Um, when the vinyl got mastered, my friend was mastering it, and he said, um, "What do you want to put on the run out? You know, any engravings?" And I said, "Oh, I don't know." He goes, "Do you want to ask the band?" I went. It's just, no, I said. Well, my favourite track on the album is "Dirty Women." It's fucking awesome. It's it's one of the best pieces of Tony playing in mm. years. I said, "Can you just put uh, Mike Dot X for MZZ, um, uh, AJE, and JIE?" And it was like Mariana and my Beautiful. two kids, yeah. and it's engraved in there. It's only on the European versions, and I gave them to them for Christmas. And I said, and Tony had signed them as well, but I said, check the run-out group. And they were like, fuck, this is amazing. And it's like, it's just pride in being able to do that, you know. Getting Andrew, my oldest son, to meet Ozzy, just brilliant. It's just things that you can do that 
um, that make you feel, well, something I've done has has changed people's life for the better. And, you know, with with everything I went through nine years ago, when I came through it, um, I went out to New York to do a Black Sabbath convention um, to coincide with the final um, uh, two dates they were going to play at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. And I was shitting myself because I'd been through nervous breakdown, anxiety, some horrendous stuff. And and this mate said, um, we want to get you up on stage to talk about your career. And I'm like, fuck off. I said, I'm not, I'm too nervous. And he got me up there. He said, don't worry, we've got you. And, um, and it was cathartic and I was able to share my story and, I was there for a week and all through that week I was bumping into Sabbath fans in New York all saying thank you so much for everything you've done for us mm. and it's like fuck you know it's a it's a heavy heavy weight to carry but it makes you think yeah I'm making a difference and that's why I'm always very reticent to throw people under the bus too much because you know I'll I'll make jokes about what people have done but i can't knock the fact that they've they've um they've made a difference too but again once it gets down to unfair treatment with money that sucks and it's mm. it's it, there's a root cause to it and i think other people are complicit in it as well and you know it's the janine isn't it um telling the lead singer that they're they're the reason that the band is successful. So mm. there's always some little devil on their shoulder, the you know, the nasty conscience telling them to fucking yeah. do it on their own. Well, I, I don't know better, Mike. I know and believe me, I don't, but I think that's what happened with Cradle. Mm. And it's so bloody sad that it happened because mm. the uh you know, Paul Lender's inclusion after the fact, you know, from Midian, of course, he was a part of the original lineup. And I'll learn mm. more this week from Paul Ryan about what their their co-contribution was, how they wrote yeah. together, this sort of thing. But um mate, after after really your involvement with the band, you know, it really just became Danny and the Filth and the, the group mm. is just it's it's really a, a le- I, I call it a legacy act, but to be frank, I'm being kind. It's mm. Danny in particular bringing in, I think he's got an Eastern European guitarist. Man of War did the same thing. And mm. you don't have to be a genius to work out to your point, exact point there about money. You can pay unders mm. for certain people from certain re- for, for people from certain regions because there's just yeah. not that equivalency there. You know, you get you get people from the Anglosphere, as I call it. You know, you've got to pay them at an mm. equivalency. Yeah. Outside of that, it's all fair game. Okay. Yeah. But but something else I want to, you know, give you, you know, some some feedback on is you you're damn bloody right, mate. You have made a difference to people's lives. I've said Thank I've you. said it to Chris Bell, Nigel Wingrove, Stu, Nick. If I ever spoke to Les, I'd say the same thing. I'd probably even say it to Danny, but just not as enthusiastically. I mean, if you didn't do what you are doing, people's lives wouldn't be as fulfilling as what they are right now. And that's such yeah. an important point because this music, it's a confidant, it's a friend, it's it's a it's a it's a light and dark times. Mm. You know, Absolutely, that you, you mentioned that early on. You know, yeah. You um, you can uh, a friend of mine. Um, they're they're a, a, an engineering couple. They're hilarious. Avril and Andy, Avril McIntosh and Andy uh, Bradfield, um, uh, are a pair of uh, engineers that I know. And um, they, I first saw Avril McIntosh's name as assistant on "Waking Up the Neighbors" by Brian Adams. She was Clear Mountain's assistant for that record, and she's a friend of mine. And um, and we talk about stuff. Um, and her husband's a brilliant, brilliant engineer too. And we were chatting about stuff, and they they 
put something up on on Facebook once about they were remixing one of the Marillion albums, the Fish Era Marillion. And I mm-hmm. said, this is fucking brilliant. This is amazing. Didn't know you were working with him. So we got talking and everything. Anyway, they brought out the the surround remix of Fugazi. Now, Fugazi was the second album that Marillion did before they hit big with Misplaced Childhood, which was the one with Kaylee on it. It was a real concept album and it was stunning. But Fugazi was an album that it turns out had so many problems making it. It reminded me of what was going on with Dusk, uh, not Dusk, um, Cruelty. It was it was one of those where nothing went according to plan. The money side of things was awful. They were being forced into a situation to record it when they should have been resting. There was all this stuff. There were record company deadlines. But the point I'm getting to isn't that similarity. It was when when they said, you've got to check this out. We really value your opinion as a fan as to what we've done to it. And I listened to it and I just, I rang her up. I said, all I can think about is a family holiday when we went to Lake Geneva, because that was what I was listening to on my Walkman back in 1984. I mm. said, I don't care what you've done to it. It's just taken me back to my childhood. Mm. And they were like, that's what we want to hear. They hadn't destroyed it. I mean, there were a few keyboard warriors who were going on about the fucking crossfade between two tracks and all this shit. But oh God, anybody yeah. that's a real fan just went, wow, thank God. And that's the way I feel about the new remix of Animals. It's actually really good because James Guthrie is a god of recording and mixing. Mm. But for me, it's what the music does to you emotionally. I can I can listen to part nine of Shine On You Crazy Diamond and all I can remember is the final part of the train journey down from um, in the Rockies uh, coming down into Vancouver because that's what I was listening to when that that happened. Mm. So it's, it's an incredible time machine. It's a transportation device music and um, it's supposed to elicit an amazing emotional reaction from you. And we are in a very, very, um, it's the Spider-Man thing, isn't it? It's like with mm. great, uh, res- great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> we have a, we have a responsibility yeah. to make this shit good and and to be a reflection of what the artist is trying to say at the time. Talking um, about making shit good, though, and was, sorry to interrupt if I am. But, <laughs> that's um, all right. H- how did you not throttle Rick Rubin? <laughs> because I can't stand the bastard. Seriously, how on earth he's made I mean, Kerry King has said everything that needs to be said about the guy, but <laughs> clearly. Well, I, over to I you. think, um, I think, um, Oh, God, what's his name? His name's gone out of my head now. Um, right, Mariana's going to remember. Uh, Slipknot singer. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm not a fan. Corey, but yeah, Corey Taylor. Corey, Corey Taylor, yeah. Oh, yeah, you've both agreed with me. That's good. Um, yeah. yeah, Corey Taylor. <laughs> when we were making, when we were writing 13 and we were like having some misgivings about why he was never turning up, Corey Taylor did that stand-up <laughs> show. Um, where someone asked him what it was like working with Rick Rubin. And all I'll say is um, I think he was spot on. Um, I got on all right with with Rick as far as anybody can get on all right with Rick. There were some moments of of hilarity where um, the the humour didn't transcend across the Atlantic. Um, (laughs) Let's just put it that way. (laughs) I, I took a, I took some notes at the time. I was writing a daily journal. And I can't find it because I probably did it on some 
in iPad that Apple stopped making the software or something. But I remember mm. writing stuff down and in a very positive way, absorbing the situation of being in a room with that happening because it was a huge album for me. It was like it was if if the devil you know was highly anticipated. It was it was the mumblings of oh my God, Sabbath are getting back together with with Ronnie. That was never going to happen. I mean, unfortunately, Eagles had already taken Hell Freezes over as a title. Um, yeah. So you know, um, when we were we were stum for about a year before the announcement was made that Sabbath were reforming, we'd known about that for a long time. Is that with um, Aussie so, or with with, with uh, Aussie? Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so that uh, literally a year before. It was more than a year, actually. Um, the contact was made about um, Ozzy would be interested in working with the guys again. Um, so we'd gone a year into trying to find this process that would work. Because, again, Ozzy's got a successful solo career um, and Tony had done his own things. And it was it was about getting these people who, who had last been in the band together properly back in, what, 1978? I think. Correct. Yep. So it was a long time. Um and I have to say that was equally as fun as the Devil You Know sessions. Because ju- the they're just nutcases, a lot of them. They're all really funny. Um e- every single member of Sabbath and like Vinnie Apice and um um Brad Wilk just insanely funny people so such a comfortable environment to be in and i would say we all felt like there was going to be a visit from the headmaster or something every time rick turned up (laughs) um he's got his it's funny because i was watching one of his interviews this morning about this new book of his um <laughs> which, which I think should be subtitles things like subtitle things I read in a fortune cookie. Um mm. I in fact I used that at one point in one of the sessions. He 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 came out with some comment about something and it was really if you feel you're going in a certain direction and it doesn't feel like it's the right direction, please feel free to change direction. And I just giggled oh. and Tony looked at me and I went is That's he being horrible. Is yeah. he at the fortune cookies again? <laughs> and he started laughing. Oh, um, yeah, so he's bad. an odd he's an odd guy. Um and we yeah, we watched that video on Corey Taylor well, Corey Taylor really fucking had a go about him. And we I think it was sort of a toleration in in one respect. Um he did bring stuff to the party that made them think. I think Rick's Main, I would say his main forte is putting teams together to solve problems. So at the time, I wouldn't say Sabbath had any problems. Um, we were getting on very well as a, as a sort of five people in a room working through songwriting and everything. Um, I don't think they needed to be shown how to make an album after all this time. Um, Tony had just gone through the cancer thing. By the time mm. we got in the studio, he'd he'd gone through January tw- twenty twelve to 
August before he was sort of through the main treatments. He was then having to have infusions every two months to boost okay. his antibodies. So by the time we got in the studio, he wasn't at 100% fighting fit, but he certainly was at 100% playing and being a being him. Um, but to get the album done, because it had already been going on for about 18 months, we did it. Um, there was no fighting what was going on. It was almost a case of it'll get made in spite of any of this stupidity that goes on. Because there are things that Rick brought to the table. He changed the course of it. It could have been a continuation of The Devil You Know. That may not have suited what... Um, what That would have been awesome, sorry. That would have been fantastic. Mm. I I believe so. I mean, I don't know if you heard the um, the track that Tony and I did a couple about 18 months ago when he launched the Aftershave. Um, it was a thing called Scent of Dark, and it, we got real strings on it, and it was no, heavy. It's just it instrumental. Out, yeah. yeah, it's... Um, I think it's just under Iomi, um, Scent of Dark. And it's, I mean, it's, you know, the video is a little bit um, perfume -selly. Um, But it came about with good intentions and it was a really heavy piece of music and people were like, holy fuck, this is great. Um, he and I write together all the time and it's a, it's a massive thing to make it as powerful sounding as possible. Um, and if there's an album that divided the fans, it, it's 13 because... There are fans who who wanted an original Sabbath-sounding album, and there are fans who wanted to see what Sabbath would do in 2013. And to be honest, I don't think we got either. It was good songs, um, but I think they got lost in the um, in the machine. Uh, uh, as Rick's always got this phrase of like, let's put it through the whatever insert band name here filter. Mm. So it'll be like there, there was a uh, there was a thing where he was um, having a songwriting meeting with the Dixie Chicks, and the two mm. girls in the band with um, Natalie Maines was sort of talking mm. about this song, and then the other two are going, "What do you think our, our involvement's going to be? You know, this is personal to Natalie Maines, though. Well, you know." Let's just concentrate on good songs to start with, and then we'll put it through the Dixie Fit Chicks filter to see what that becomes. And it's mm -hmm. like um, it's that kind of thing. So the Sabbath filter, um, I think they turned it up to eleven because it was very much about how can we make it sound just like the first album. Oh, and God. you can't. So, so it was like Sabbath by Sabbath, if you know what I'm saying. Mm. Like, you know, like, let's cover ourselves, which ironically yeah. is what I think Cradle of Filth have been doing ever since mm. Paul and Linda stepped out of the band. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the, the thing is, um, you know, you get, interestingly with Priest, because I, I hold them up as an example, is you've got two types of fans of Priest, possibly three. You've got the, the ones that love the Turbo era. Mm-hmm. You've got the ones that love the classic era and you've got the ones that love the painkiller era. And Priest covers all of those really well. But most, I would say, the most vociferous Priest fans want Priest to sound like painkiller all the time. Yeah. And they're not that bad. They're not it's that. one album. Yeah. Um. They're a classic rock band, you know, Living After Midnight, um, Another Thing Coming. You've well, got well, all these songs that are classic. 
Yeah, and painkillers Scott Travis, right? You know, what I mean, that's him mm. coming in and just and doing this full on yeah. American thrash metal thing, and the guys yeah. just keeping up with him. In my opinion, would you agree, yeah. or have I got a my, my take um, on I think I think Glenn probably had a lot to do with it. Uh, Scott and I talked about it, and he's like, I think I think Glenn had listened to stuff I'd done, and was like, and I I good friends with Jeff Waters from Annihilator as well, and he said oh, around really? that time, yeah, okay. he said yeah. he was that they because I think Annihilator supported pretty on the painkiller tour and pantera did too important that's it You're yeah right. yeah um yeah. so he was um he's a massive fan of priest and he was like yeah he said um it was almost like glenn wanted to do something so different to turbo that they went that far in the opposite direction and again i said it early you know if a band's got a, a career that lasts 30 40 50 years then you're gonna have Lots and lots of things that are different. I mean, you listen to good old-fashioned Loverboy and, and Bohemian mm. Rhapsody, you wouldn't mm. think they were the same band. The only cohesive thing there is Freddie. Mm-hmm. And again, that gets back to that person that's selling and fronting the band. I think in, in Tony's case, Tony is really the sound of Sabbath. Um, he's, he's, the, he's the sound that makes people go, fuck, that's... Iomi. Um, I I don't think Dream Theater have got an identity. They're all, you know, unless it's poor old um, what's his name's vocals, which are James LeBrie. Yeah. Then they're, yeah. they're not in the top ten vocalists. I wouldn't say. Um, but then you've got um, you've got these other things where it's like you listen to Ronnie, you listen to Ian, you listen to Rob. It's instantly recognizable who that is. Oh, and Bruce, you know, they're instantly recognizable. You know these bands. Uh, because of that and they are the that's why i think when you get someone like ripper owens coming in and to priests camp he's you know they they become priest doing priest that's Um, an interesting episode isn't it that's a because mm. they were the one band that had a fighting chance with a brand one classic band that had a fighting chance in that era i'm talking about the 90s which is bloody awful for metal as you remember (laughs) Well, it really came back on the back of there was two bands. So, I mean, people argue about Sepultura, but they fell apart. But there was yeah. Devon Townsend and Strapping Young Lad, and there's Cradle of Filth. They were the yeah. two bands that in the doldrums actually started to spearhead metal out of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, God, I'd love to do an album with Townsend. He's, oh, he's a genius. Yeah, he's a genius. He's, yeah, he's funny a- as well. God. Mm. I mean, he's he's a bit like the guys from Opeth. They do this thing where they can transcend <laughs> that that heavy, growly, double kick shit and go full prog on you, mm. and it's seamless. That's what Filth could sound like. If Filth had the sonics of Blackwater Park by Opeth, it would be like wow, that would that would knock on a few doors. Well, well, what a, what I said to Stuart was that. Ultimately, what happened was with Iron Maiden bringing in Blaze, they lost their way completely, let's face it. Oh, wrong vocals, wrong song. Bloody awful, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, it doesn't get any they, better either, does he? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. And, and I, I feel for the guy because he's just been thrust into the limelight um, in a, in a way that you would never want him to be, given no. the timbre of his voice and even the personality yeah. that he's got. You need a really bold personality. Mm. But Cradle stepped into that void. They were Iron Maiden for that era. The the yeah. Stuart Stuart bought in. Stuart was the one guy that unlocked new wave of British heavy metal within the black metal parameters. 
Yeah. And uh, it again, it just hasn't been done again. It's very weird what happened around that band. We, we, we you know, we, that that part of the band that you were such a crucial cog mm. to ensure was realised. The the sound was realised. None of it has ever happened again. It was like this zeitgeist that just went whoosh. But we still got there's something. It. Um, there's something weird about that early two thousands time, isn't there? As well, where um, a lot of industrial influences came into the the punky side of metal. It was like this sudden access to um, technology. It's like kill to this. I remember mm-hmm. I, I worked with them on their second album. I'm seeing Mark in a couple of weeks. I'm doing a, a, a university <laughs> research thing for him. Wow. Um, okay. And. Um, it's really funny. He, I remember the stories of the first album, which was, was that Voodoo Vice and something. I can't remember. The second one was Trinity. That's the one I worked on. Yeah. And I remember that's a good album, by the way, Trinity. Yeah, it's oh, good, I quite isn't like it? That one. Yeah. Well, the connection there is that the bass player on that album ended up playing keyboards with um, girls. The, the female. Yeah, what's her name? I can't, uh, she Caroline. Ended up playing, Caroline. So she ended up playing yeah. live keyboards, didn't she? Yes. Yeah. She yes, was on. Uh, she that. was on a couple of tours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was that was funny as well because talk about the um, uh, Doctor Midnight coming in. <laughs> I'm not sure she appeared on Trinity at all. Um, oh right. Yeah, okay. But um, so so the first album I remember. Sneep had been recording it with uh, with Minor about you know doing doing the full on heavy shit, and then the mix came, and suddenly Mark comes in with all these bloody samplers and synths and things and sequences, and he's like, "What the fuck's all this shit?" Mm-hmm. So the next album was um, was he was like, "You've got to have this done ahead of time." So Mark was traveling back up north where he lived and making sure that we had up to date stuff. And but it was it was very very much of that time. It was like um, you couldn't make an album unless there was a fucking drum loop backing a you know yep. a real drummer and very stuff new, like new that. Metal stuff going on. Wasn't it, was, it? it was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and. You know, I think Linkin Park pretty much defined what that the ultimate of what that could have been, and and I actually loved what they did with the two different styles of vocals. I mean, Chester fucking rocked, and he had a fucking amazing voice. And Shinoda did, but in a different way. He was it was almost like when you hear um, Rage Against the Machine compared to Prophets of Rage. I think the Prophets guys, you know, the Cypress Hill, I guess it was Cypress Hill, wasn't it, or whatever. The, anyway, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they felt like they suited the groove better than Zach. I I loved the Prophets of Rage stuff. Well, they Even couldn't though, get along with Zach. I mean, the issue there was personal. I don't think it was musical. They um, they couldn't stand each other there for a period of time. And uh, but, but just talking about Rage, yeah. look, I, mm. I, often, I often felt that, uh, and I still feel that, Okay, so whose decision was it to bring in Brad Brad Wilk from Rage Against the Machine to record Thirteen? The suggestion was Rick's. The band oh decided. Um, Brad was great. We had a few people that were um, that auditioned, and because Nick would have done it. To be honest, I've said the same thing to Tony from Venom. Yeah, don't, don't I don't think him? I don't think Nick would have been right for it. Um. Snape said to me once, he says, you should have got the guy from Clutch. And I was like, oh, I didn't know okay. about him. 
because um, mm. Andy's got a really, I mean, he's a good producer. He's a really good producer. And he's sort of knows the stuff. I mean, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but I think one of his favorite bands is Status Quo, you know, growing up. So he's not like this metalhead that doesn't, that, that's totally against all other kinds of music. He recognizes the right person for the right job. Um, I think Brad did a really good job. I think the problem is you don't hear what he was capable of. And that's my big yeah. issue with it. I, um, I look at overall, I think the issue from the fans' perspective, and I've got to say I'm probably in the same camp as what the hell happened to Bill Ward because he could have done the recording, surely. Not no, the tour, he, but no the he really he really whatever he likes to say, when Ozzy um when Ozzy was saying what had happened with Bill, he was spot on. There there really? was no Ozzy, yeah. Bill wasn't in the right place to do it. And we did loads and loads and loads with him to try to bring, bring him up to speed. But it just it just wasn't happening. And oh, that wow. tied okay. in with Tony's um Tony's cancer. Tony was like, I don't know if I'll make it another year. At the time, I think Tony had stage three lymphoma. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, so there was a big thing of like we just need to get this record made. And eventually, I mean, there's, I don't think there's any love loss between Bill and Sharon. I think that's well known. But everything that was said in the initial statements about why Bill wasn't there was spot on. Okay. And we, you know, everybody gets asked about it all the time. And Bill has Bill has made his statements and they will argue forever and you know he'll do his autobiography and everything but ultimately it just wasn't happening and he he wasn't the Bill Ward that you'd have loved from the early days has he just Lost. lost it? Some music, I've, I've, see, I'm a musician. This isn't for show, by the way, but mm. I've worked with musicians on a basis. So I turn mm. around to the drummer and I'm like, dude, are you, have you had too mm. much to drink or what the hell's going on? And well, and then, I think, I think in, in, in a nutshell, that is almost it. I think, um, I think Bill's sobriety ended his freedom to play. He mm. got sober around the time of the 1983 album with Gillen, uh, Born Again. And um, and it's a little bit like um, Bonham and Mooney, incredible drummers. They did that shit because they were mostly off their head. And when you get yeah. someone who is overthinking everything, they're not free to move. They're not letting the subconscious get on with it. And I would say that there was there was just too much of that going on. Well, you know what they and, say, don't you, about a lot of these. Sorry, just to interrupt about yeah, a lot of yeah. the people who take drugs, the Beatles and and Pink Floyd, Sabbath, all of these ones. When you're drinking, you're just thinking about your next drink. So you're just thinking about economy. So you're just thinking yeah. about the next drink from the perspective of what do I need to do to efficiently get through to this next point. Yeah. And it has this tunnel vision effect, mm. and there is to a point if you're already very good at what you do, and in some cases, I'm not saying Bill's savant because he's clearly not not of that sort of ilk. But mm. you know, I, I I've had this conversation a lot with people. You know, I mean, like look look at Dave Mustaine ever since he stopped doing drugs mm. and alcohol. 
the songwriting mm. is just isn't there. It just it just goes, and you're like, I wish him the best, and it's obviously the best mm. thing for his family. And to be honest, that's what counts in life. But yeah, we as fans, we lose the bloody music. Yeah. David Gilmore, yeah. same thing. It bloody happened. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I'm my growing up, one of my favourite guitarists. Um, mm. he just he writes waltzes now. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's, you know, I mean, I'll, you know, I haven't listened to the last couple of things Roger's done, but Amused to Death was one of my favourite albums and still is. Same. It's exactly. fucking yeah, incredible. Same. Amazing. And, yeah, amazing, um, yeah. You know, that 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 record just I, – I hate the fact they fucked with it. I really do. The, um, the reissue a few years ago, they started putting in extra bloody effects that he uses live and little extra shit, mm. and I'm like, oh, stop it. Because I always said that it was like when someone said to me, "Oh, what would you, you know, what would you like to go back and do?" And I went, "Well, I'd love." To, and when I grew up, when I was growing up, I'd love to have remixed animals, but I, no, I don't want to. I'm glad that James Guthrie's done it because he's brilliant, and it's actually a really nice treatment. You get the odd little bit where the bass is playing and you hear the snare rattling. That's all there. Mm. There's extra bits of keyboard. It's a real sensitive remix. Um, and I always say, you know, what, why on earth would I want to work with Pink Floyd? They did fine without me. You know, that's why I like them. But mm. as soon as Gilmore and Waters stopped fighting, that that was it. You know, there was, mm-hmm. all, you know, within the band, there was no fucking spark. Um, I went to see Floyd on the momentary lapse tour and the Division Bell tour. You did that, yeah. But to be honest, I get more of a kick out of Waters, and I don't want to see him on this tour because I think I've seen the best tour he's ever done, and that was the Us and Them tour. Well, he's too um, bitter these days. He's he's gone mm. to this whole anti anti Israeli thing and all the rest mm. of it, and he's he's screaming at people from stage these days about yeah. you're a bigot if you you're a bigot if you support Israeli bar, apartheid yeah. and all this bullshit. And it's so like no. you're not you're not even to be honest, you're not even correct. Technically, no. okay, you have no understanding of Middle Eastern politics. You just think you do. You're one of them. You're like these hardcore mm. lefty types that do that. But also <laughs> to just understand understand where your audience is at. Mm-hmm. Have some self-awareness of what your audience are there to listen mm-hmm. to. It's the same thing with that idiot from Ice Earth. He's beside the point, but that guy from Ice Earth that stormed the Capitol building Whatever their version of Parliament House is in the states, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he did that. Uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name now. I but... can't remember, but yeah, I remember yeah, the story. Uh, John Schaefer. John Schaefer. Yeah, it. he did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But the, the opposite ends of the spectrum. In, but they yeah. they they forget what they're there to do, mm-hmm. which is entertain and bring music well, to the people. Given, um, they've been given a privilege, haven't they? The, the, they've been put there. Some people understand it. Some people very much. I mean, I do fucking no. Nobody can see what I'm doing, but this this bollocks on stage when, you know, they're oh, you know, thanks to the fans, you know, oh, I'm feeling it in my heart. That's mm. got really sickly for me. As have the photos at the end of the gig where the band put their back to the audience and get a selfie. I'm so mm. sick of that shit. But they've been put there by the fans, and a lot of people understand that, and they realise that even though they don't have to do records for the fans. They certainly don't want to shove anything in the fans' face because it's. Mm. I don't know if you remember back in the early nineties. You probably don't know. There was a there was a firm of jewelers over in the UK called Ratners, and this guy Gerald Ratner was infamous for one day because they were they were a high street jewelry seller. One day he did a speech to a CBI conference or something, and they said. Uh, 
he says, people often ask me how I can keep the costs down, prices low on all my jewellery. And he goes, basically because it's a load of shit. Mm. And within a month, his business had gone because the public said, well, then you're calling us cunts, aren't you, for buying oh, your wow. stuff? Jesus. And that's what you can do by saying the wrong thing. Because if you, if you, your loyal supporters suddenly think that you've been taking them for a ride, they'll turn on you really quickly. So, and it's even worse in the, these days of internet, you know, it's, it's awful. So I think people have got a responsibility to, to either, I mean, it's the fans responsibility not to react and take the, you know, give people shit. I would never go on a forum and diss Gil, Gilmore. He's got plenty of fans that love what he does. I choose not to think it's as good as his heyday, mm -hmm. but if it moves people, great. Um, but I think you're not a real fan if you're going to tear them apart online. I think that's terrible. And it's got vitriolic. I mean, poor old Andy Sneap's got so much shit for stepping in to help Glenn out on live dates. Is that right? Oh, he's he's had everything the, thrown at the him. The blabbermouth forums, that bullshit. Everything, the yeah. Stuff. Yeah, Sneap's useless, get KK in. It's like, oh, fucking hell. Oh, just, I meant to ask you that when you mentioned him first. Have you read KK's book? And if you have read it. No. Can you, yeah, I, I've, I read his, I've read his book. <laughs> Yeah, and look, it's a, whoever's book you read. Like I read the whatever the drummer's name is from Aerosmith, and I finished that. And I was like, "Fuck, he's oh, been Joey hard done Kramer. by." Yeah, yeah, I was like, "Fuck, yeah. he's been hard done by," and I hated yeah. Joe Perry and you know yeah. Tyler there for a bit, you know, as you tend to do. And but then yeah. I realized, fucking hell, they're just telling you it's his narrative. They're telling yeah. you their story. Okay, so yeah. KK's book is is very much a narrative, but. He talked mm. about how he went into quite a lot of detail about how in the mid-80s there when the band started getting really popular on MTV, that mm. Glenn dyed his hair blonde and all of this sort of stuff and that he was locked out of the soloing side of things early on. And mm. some of that stuff, some of that stuff you can identify with, but you think, well, mm. the band is successful because of the chemistry that was that that brought it to fame. Okay. Yeah. So KK, I never felt as likely you didn't either, that KK was diminished because he didn't do solos. I always no. felt he was just, he was like the, uh, in, in Australia, it's not Angus that's revered, it's Malcolm. Oh, absolutely. And Absolutely and I, correct. I was thinking yeah. it must have been the same thing for KK, but he didn't, he didn't feel that way. No, um, and I can imagine what it's like within the inner workings where you've got the the strength of personality that Glenn has. And ultimately also you get someone that's willing to take on the role of driving the, the juggernaut, which Glenn would do. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying anything specific because I don't know the ins and outs and I don't, I hope nobody ever takes any offense, but when someone is willing to do the hard work, other people are willing to let them do that. So if the, the say in Glenn's case, he's driving that machine to get these, these albums made in the best way possible, as far as he is concerned, and he's not getting, Maybe he's not letting people in to, I mean, I found it hard to to push back on him at times. Um, but ultimately he, 
he knows that band. He's been involved in all the success. So in the absence of any kind of real pushback or a united pushback, then he's going to get away with it. And I can imagine after a few years that gets pretty fucking draining, you know, and and there are always going to be things where um, you, you don't know the full ins and outs of what's gone on and you always hear one side and you hear the other side. I take a really pragmatic approach. I've never met KK. He was out just before I started working with them. Um, I've, you know, I've heard from people that work with him that he's a lovely guy. I think he's getting some pretty bad advice not to just let stuff go because yeah. he's not doing he's not doing the legacy any good at all. I think um the silence of of Judas Priest was an honorable thing to do. Great. I think they they tried to keep it storm. Glenn didn't know well he probably should have known earlier that he wasn't going to be able to tour he kind of he dropped it on Andy Wright at the last minute and Andy Shit. stepped in and they were able to do that um and you could just do without the fighting in the background because nobody really cares that's why I laugh off the Roger Waters thing it's like oh god it's them again someone told me and I and I believe him because it's um uh he's He's high up in one of the organisations that had a lot to do with it. When Pink Floyd had their exhibition four or five years ago at the Victorian Albert Museum, um, apparently, <laughs> literally a week before it was due to open, Gilmore threw his toys out the pram because Roger had gone on record saying, well, I've been around the exhibition and it's quite plain that I was the creative force in this band. <laughs> And Gilmore reacted, well, that's it. I'm not letting this exhibition go ahead. And someone said, you know he's baiting you. He's been doing it all your life. Just ignore him, yeah. for God's sake, you know. And it, I should imagine it is probably pretty to do. I mean, pretty difficult to do. We've all got family fallouts and people we have to deal with. I think maybe because I'm in production and 98% of it is psychology. You <laughs> just learn to see both sides and work work the problem. It's very rare that you get to the point where you can't do the full Kofi Annan and get the, the problem <laughs> resolved. And when you can't, you, head, you bat it back at management and tell them it's their problem. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's insane, isn't it? It's passion that fuels it. But yeah, it's it's a real difficult um, one to navigate. And when they all start doing tell-all books, it's like, oh, God, you know, you're not really doing anybody any favours, are you? You're just opening up the gossip mongers. It'd be nice if I got a Cradle of Filth record to ruin. <laughs> I did oh, say God. that to Danny. I said, next time you think you're doing a record, give me a call. I don't know why you would that's, that's what I can't I'm, understand. It's like I think I, well, we may have touched on it a couple of hours ago, but I think there's a chance there um, that, that he's just comfortable working with the people around him. Maybe that's cool. You know, people people find people that they like um, that get the job done the way they like it. Yeah, and I, was... I wonder if it's uh, I don't I wouldn't imagine there's so much of a passion there in terms of art the way that they used to be with with nick and Stu. so you know it's it's more about 
just maybe getting back on the machine and um and making another record and because that's that's what he loves to do it just yeah. may not be as passionate as it used to be well they don't they don't they don't uh they don't hit you the same way oh, I, well, I haven't to listened to anything since cruelty uh, i mean i did listen to the ep but yeah it was like yeah i didn't i didn't follow them because it really, you know, again, it wasn't really the stuff that I, I enjoyed. Um, when I, yeah, I heard a couple of things and I was like, nah. I went to see them. God, would that have been about four or five years ago? Um, what do you think? I didn't think that they'd done much since they did. They, I, can't remember which song. I think they did Cruelty Brought the Orchids. I may be wrong, but they certainly did something or a couple of things from the albums I was involved in. I was like, these sound great. These these are really good. Um, I didn't think the songwriting was as accomplished. And it wasn't a bitterness at all because I have no axe to grind. I just, it didn't hit me the way that the earlier stuff did. It, it had become... No, exactly. It'd be yeah. It it would it'd become something that was just like it wasn't as original as what they did. They you said it earlier. They set themselves apart from what everything else that was going on back in that time. Um, and there's again, there's a laziness in we're all we're all influenced by something, but there's a laziness with people who think they can just outright copy stuff that's going on. And I'm not saying Danny's copying it. What I'm saying is other people started to copy what Craig Craig Filth were. And there becomes this huge morass of um of look you know sound alikes and lookalikes. I mean this is the big joke about the heavy metal posters where you can't read one band name because they're all in that same <laughs> look script. at the festival dates these days. It's a lot like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So you you sort of go through this thing and you go, I I don't I don't know anymore. I it all it's getting old as well. It all sounds the same to me, um, because a lot of it is the same. I don't what what I hook on to is what is what's the story that's being told. What can I what can I get my teeth into? What is it that makes me want to listen to that again? And um, and if there's none of that going on, then it is just an excuse to go out and be in a circle pit. And I don't do that. Yeah. No, I don't either. It's, bo- <laughs> it's boring as shit. I've been to a few. I mean, I, I get I get access to all these festivals mm-hmm. as a journo, and you go to them. And um, look, I'm complimentary in the moment. And mm. I look, I'll name the I'll name the bands. You know, like I'm on a Marth and mm. Sabaton and mm. this sort of thing. But they just they can't hit me the same way because it's I'm, I'm maybe I'm too old. That's another thing. I appreciate that. I totally get it. Maybe if you're 15 or something like that, and you're mm. Sabaton for the first time, you're like, wow, here we go. And they're great mm. guys. Spoken to the guys a bunch of times. Mm. Swedish band. They they put in a pretty good show. But does it hit me the same way as watching Cradle of Filth in 1997 in a dirty mm. club in Sydney? No. Nah. Of course no. it doesn't. It can't because you can't recreate that era. No, you, you can't sort of re, you can't recreate that burgeoning sense of what's going to happen next because we know what mm. happens next with the internet these days. We know what happens next. And I spoke to the guys that you know in Flames at all. Uh, the band in Flames. I know all of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they helped write that that metalcore book. 
Right. Him and at the gates, the other Swedish band. The Swedish band yeah. did a tremendous job, such a great job, yeah. you know. And uh, yeah. but but it, there was a period of time there where the book was written effectively in Carcass, the British band. You know, Bill Steer. Yeah. Um, mm. Nick was Nick. I think wanted to join Carcass there for a bit, but uh, the uh, what's the uh, bass player vocalist name? He's not a very nice guy. I've got to. Say. I've right. spoken to him before, and he was one of my least favorite interview subjects. I've got to oh, say. Fuck. Uh, he's just one of those guys, you know. Some of those, some of the, you meet some people, and yeah. they're sort of not vibing on the fact that they're doing interviews because they really do them and they don't like doing them. And there's yeah. friends in the studio and stuff, but mm-hmm. yeah, you. The point is, is that is that we as older fans and you as a bloke who's been integral integral in bringing these sounds to us as the fans, mm-hmm. you know, we tend to be sort of we tend to sort of pick our era. As a uh, from myself, from my perspective as a fan, we pick our era, and that's where we identify with. And it's very hard to get outside of that. Mm. Okay, it's very yeah. hard to get outside of that. But then I also think, quite sincerely, that the work that you were a part of is some of the best work we'll ever hear from the genre, extreme metal. Mm. Hey, I agree. I think you had something about it that people still cared. I, yeah. I, I'm. I'm very, very um, protective of the craft of making records and making albums, not least being a massive, massive um, thing that is, it's not like making a three-minute single. It's not like doing a single like song, even if it's a five-minute song, whatever. Making an album is a, is a real investment of your heart and soul. And we did, we did great work on those records. And I still take that sensibility. I mean, I'm, I'm control surface speakers, monitors over to one side. I hate looking at a computer screen. Mm. It's what's coming through the speakers is really important. And I'm lucky because I still worked on tape up until, um, God, I would imagine, two or three years beyond from the cradle. That was all tape. Um, and it makes you work in a certain way and you listen and you you become invested in the project. Um, and there's not enough of that nowadays. There's There are some people that do it. Jay Rustin is very, very much. He's he does, fantastic. Uh, yeah. He's awesome. He's a really good guy. Mm. And we've chatted about it. And he's like, uh, and Joe Barisi as well. Joe's so old school. Yeah. You mentioned um, him earlier. Great guy too. Yeah. yeah he's great. awesome. Yeah. We, it was really nice last summer. I got to hang out with him for, well, most of the day. A mate of mine and I were over in California and we just hung out for the day talking shit because we'd never had the opportunity to just hang out together it would always it was always passing at nam and stuff but they're people jay and and joe are people that make records without worrying about tech um and i'm the same i'm all about getting a band in together and playing and making them feel part of this procedure that is um that's about creating this um this marking of a particular point in time that everybody's emotionally attached to the idea of of cross atlantic sending of files and you know not being in a room together 
Um, doing records piecemeal is horrible. It's an awful, awful thing. Mm. And um, that's not making records. That is documenting a bunch of musicians playing separately and correcting it all and making it sound as loud as possible and making it sound as in time as possible. Um, very few people can get away with it and do a good job. And there's a whole generation of people who have never actually touched an analog EQ. They've never properly moved microphones around. They've never actually had to work on material that has been recorded by real human beings together. And the emotion that comes across when a band is working in a room together, like you mentioned about the filth guys having rehearsal photos and stuff. I doubt there's any photos of um of the recordings at debt because I don't think anybody bother bothered taking cameras in. You know, we'd have all had to take in our little 35 mil cameras and get them developed. Yeah. yeah. And that's boring. You know, it was pre-camera phone. So mm. so there's a lot of um um there's a there's a lot of rehearsal that goes into making great art. Oh, I've got a fantastic photo of um Ronnie Geezer, Tony and Vinny on the stage in um, this place called Mates in Burbank, mm. where we went and played the album for a week before we went in to record The Devil You Know back in in England because they wanted to make sure that what we'd written could be played and they, they routined the songs for a week so that we were ready to go in and record that album. And it's a huge, huge difference in um in investments of your time and your emotion when you make records properly and i think that's why dusk stands out so much because it was obviously massively important to the band at the time it was the it was the back of the album that got them in launched into the stratosphere and um, you know no small part of it is down to Kit Wolven for putting up with it and doing a fucking fantastic job and teaching me loads and dragging me along to um, to make a contribution to it. And we kind of took that into cruelty, but just as normal, usual shit happens, it got screwed up by everything else around it. Um, and sometimes you can't avoid what the inevitable is, which is the band we're going to break up into or fragment and... Um, Unfortunately, that's when um, the strongest person left takes over the reins. And, um, yeah, there never will be another one of those like that because the, the players aren't there anymore, which mm. is a shame. And well, sometimes I'd love it, to know. Sorry, you go, sorry, you go. I was going to say that, that sometimes you you wonder if, um, if that, that – that it was meant to be. That was their. That was their few years together, where it, where it was going to be the golden years, and then it was never going to be reclaimed. You know, some bands stay together far too long. I mean, I never listened to Aerosmith past um, probably Rocks. Get a Grip. Get a yeah, grip. well, I mean, okay, I like yeah. I liked Pump, but then Get a Grip was like, oh, this is actually quite good. And then it was like, mm, actually, no, I'm I'm not listening to this that much. Pump's better. Um, what was the I album yeah. after? What was the album after? Um, Get a grip. The nineteen ninety six album, nineteen ninety seven album. Nine lives. Called? Nine lives. That was all right. That was the last right. one I got too. I'm with you. Right. And mm. and then after that, I was like, when that bloody Armageddon song came out, I was like, oh, I'm out of here. This well, is that, garbage. Didn't that coincide with poor old um, Bruce Fairburn dying? 
Didn't he? It, it may have, yeah. But then maybe he the last album he may have done was Pump. I can't remember, but he did a great job on the Van Halen album, uh, Balance. That was a fucking sounding album. Really? But they, blo- they broke apart Ooh. in that bloody thing there because yeah. because yeah. Sammy and um, Van Halen. Mm. I mean, I, I, look, I'm, I'm a Sammy fan, I've got to say. I, yeah. I, I, like, I like Sammy. Sammy. I think he's a tremendous Me guy. Me too. Yeah. You know, Absolutely. Ben Halen struggled with alcoholism through that entire period and probably was in, intolerable to be around through most of it. Oh, well, I tell you, the book, um, the book. have you read the book by the uh, the then manager, Noel something? No, I should. Um, yeah, well. Oh, let me find it because um, I had it. I listened to audio books. Um, um, I think it was no. Um, I think it was called Running with the Devil. Um, let's have a look. It's in my library somewhere. Yeah, Noel Monk. He was the um, he was the guy that managed Van Halen all the way through from the early days up until. Oh, Monk. I think okay. it was the end of 1984. Mm. And um, he got unceremoniously fired by Alex. <laughs> he did a lot of the and, firing, didn't he? That poor bastard. Yeah, um, he, he was the one who had to bloody. Well, when, mm. when you say he got fired by him, I reckon he was just the guy who had to deliver the news. It wasn't that he was. Maybe. I think, listen to the book. I won't say anymore. Okay. I mean, again, it's someone's it's someone's own perspective, but this is them getting their first deal. He, I think it was something to do with the label. He was a production manager or something, and the label put him in to get involved. Um, I listened to that, and I also listened to Ted Templeman's books. And independently, they're quite they're very interesting. Um, and yeah, I think Sammy got a raw deal. I think Roth got a raw deal, but he was a prat as well. So, you know? yeah, yeah, he just comes across as a wanker, doesn't he? For the most yeah. part, whereas whereas Sammy comes across as a guy who was actually trying to make things work. And Absolutely. the thing I like about Sammy, he, he had his own career beforehand. Yeah, so yeah. he wasn't he didn't need to join Van Halen. He was already no. pretty successful. But yeah. by going in, and I love that, you know, OU812. Oh, that and 5150 was stunning. Yeah, they're my albums. two favorite albums. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of, of them, from them, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah and, it's, um, but we, you know, obviously we can't, we can't gloss over Van Halen 3, can we? Or maybe we should. Oh, it, it's all right. 1984 and Van Halen 3, they're good albums, but you've got to like that brown sound. Under itself, yeah. you know, that guitar but, but tone th- of Van Halen. But three was the one with fucking Sharon, wasn't it? Oh, Van Halen three, was, sorry, yeah. That was, one, yeah. Was, yeah. No, no, I thought you'd miss, yeah. That yeah, was, sorry. I mean, that, I played uh, that once and I don't think I've ever played it again. I, I it just didn't liked, work. I did buy it. I bought it when it came <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, me too. And I was a huge Extreme fan. So. Yeah. I bought it and I listened to it, and then that you know that song must be some kind of love where we yeah. can get it right, you know that yeah. sort of thing. And and I thought, wow, they're going for a full on nineties MTV thing going here. And I can get behind it. At the time, I liked it. It just hasn't aged well. No, that's no, what it is. Exactly. You know, it's, it's a grungy that. sound. It's got kind of grunge sort of a mm-hmm. sound gardeny thing going on at the time. I thought, you it's know, a, and, it's uh, a real follow on to balance, isn't it? Because that kind of it, yeah, it was that. That's where they were going with balance, really stripped the sound down. And um, yeah, and, and that was Sammy said not to do that. That was a big issue mm, because Van Halen mm, wanted to go in that direction and mm, we've got to compete with Nirvana, man. It's like you don't because your fan base no. is completely different. 
But I think, yeah, I mean, you and I were around back and the kids these days don't understand how much pressure. I spoke to George Lynch about this. I mean, George Lynch got so much pressure from his record label. He had to release an album under the Lynch mob moniker, which for all intents and purposes, aped Limp Biscuit. This is George Lynch, right, from Dawkins. Tony Tony had to release an album called Seventh Star, Black Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi. It was meant to be a solo album. And it was the one that Glenn Hughes sang on. And yeah, the record label to, ins- insisted on it being a yeah, I spoke to Bob Daisley about this. You know, Bob Daisley's <laughs> Australian. I spoke to Bob about yeah. this. You know, and um, yeah, it was look, I, I think Tony was detached by then. Would you agree? Or did yes. you, I mean, you, yeah, he was, he sort of got yeah. to the point where he's just like, whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Probably fighting to save the band again. You know, I don't know what to do. When you think about yeah. the timings, it's like I don't, I don't even know who else was on the album. Probably Rondinelli, maybe I can't remember. Probably, I'd say there was, yeah. there, you know, he'd lost his mates. The uh, there was no other Sabbath people there at all. Yeah, it's um, it's a tough one, isn't it? And that's that's those are dark periods, and you think, God, should they have gone into semi-retirement for a bit? But they don't because that's all they know. Yeah, and and then it becomes a piece of history that people have very very um, strong opinions about. Well, I suppose if Def Leppard had, they wouldn't release Slang from nineteen ninety six. You know, there's all these albums that come out, yeah, in the wrong era for they're the they're the right band, wrong era sort of mm. thing. You know, and uh, I, I mean that Love f- and Hate Collide song is awesome. Yeah, you know well, that's off the other one. That's off the one before that. Whatever that was yeah. called. Yeah, that was a yeah. that was a best of, wasn't it, or something with a single. Yeah, and... it had like a chick on a mirror that looked like a skull yeah. on the front of it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. can't remember the name of it. I thought that was no. a great track, actually. Though yeah, that it was. One yeah, great song. Um, it's just it's just one of those things, and it comes around again. You know, I mean, we're now two generations of, since, since the eighties. It's like fuck. <laughs> well, I tell you what, I don't like Mike because I don't like when artists disown an era of their catalogue. Yeah. That that yeah, like Celtic Frost, for example, like Tom G. Right. Fisher or Warrior, whatever he's you know he's Tim G. Fisher, but you know Tom G. Warrior, <laughs> totally disowned Cold Lake from 1988. It's one of my favourite albums from them. It's yeah. the, actually my gateway into the band. Yeah, and uh, I'm like. What's wrong with it? <laughs> okay, yeah. the photos are ridiculous. I'll agree with him on that. Yeah. But they look like poison or something. But well, the this is the, this heavy. is that it's the Gerald Ratner thing, the jeweler I was talking about. It's like you're basically mm. saying that your fans were all wrong and they were stupid. Mm. You can't do that to people. You've you've got to you've got to own your past and stand by what you've done. And if you've done something horrible, be apologetic and actually definitely remorseful. But You've got to own it. You've got to say, I'm not trying to say that that was shit and I was in a bad place. It that Yeah, we did that shit. Sorry. There's a lot of people that laugh about it. I mean, I'm sure Ozzy just laughs about that video with him. Um, was it Crazy Train with the fucking big shoulder pads? I mean, really? Well, he's even worse. He, he's tried to, he, he hasn't remastered <laughs> oh. the ultimate sin. He's totally ignored that album. I know. I and, know. And, and Bob Daisy wrote that bloody thing. And, mm-hmm. It's like, mate, you can't just say that to fans like me, and that's yeah. my favourite album from him, by the way, mm. you can't just say we're wrong for our preference, our taste. I mean, you no. put it out there. Stand by it. You know, yeah. J.K. Lee still played on it. You had great musicians yeah. on it. Phil Susan yeah. ended up playing bass on it. Bob Bob wrote it, but Phil Susan, mm. who's in, in last in line, you know, with uh, the Dio, yes. the Dio yeah. thing. 
you know. Yeah, I saw them and, a couple of years ago. They're great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, who's the drummer who's long since passed away? Um, oh, the God. one of the uh, well, Vinny was the drummer in. Um, it, it, Vinny played on on the last in line to Vinny Appice. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of the drummer who was uh, who was who in was Aussie's on... band there for about two or three two or three albums. It wasn't Tommy Aldridge, the one after him. Sorry, any other time I'd remember it, and people who listen to this I will remember. be saying it's this person. You should yeah. know. But well, um, and we're not checking Google because we're we're determined we haven't got Alzheimer's. So exactly, <laughs> it'll, it'll pop into our head at some point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but uh, Ozzy's disowned that album completely, which brings me to another point that I, mm-hmm. I, I should have asked earlier. But mm. what was your what was your perception on dealing and your experience dealing with Sharon? <laughs> well, she was she was funny. Um, you know, she's a tyrant. Um, we did a lot of the songwriting um, for the first. We were backwards and forwards between Tony's studio and Ozzy's studio, um, and Ozzy's was in his house. So we had um, we were in the basement at, at Ozzy's a lot, and Sharon was great. I mean, she knew that the band were doing a good job of doing their you know their thing. They were getting back together. They were negotiating the whole songwriting situation. You know, get four mm. people in the room again together who have. Um, who have maybe not worked together in this in in this situation properly with a real end in sight because they they talked about getting back together after the first reunion at the end of the nineties. They'd had a couple of abortive sessions of trying to write new songs. Um, it just wasn't right for them. But this time it was like Oz was fully committed. Um, Tony Geese and Bill Wall fully committed. So let's. Let's see how this goes. And she left it, really left us alone to do it. You know, she popped her head in from time to time. Um, and she's funny. You know, I didn't have any any run-ins um because she knew, I guess, that they were they were doing the right thing. They they were getting on with what they do as a band. They didn't need managing. Hmm. So um I remember because she was doing the America's Got Talent stuff at the time, and I remember having some hilarious conversations about some of the contestants, like oh God, the yeah. guy that would self-flagellate, you know, and whack his balls and all this. And, well, you know, she's got a wicked sense of humour. Um, but over a two-year period, really, I I didn't see that much of her. So mm. all I know is that she's a very, very strong businesswoman and gets stuff done. And that's why um, I think she was sort of the the point person on the project, you know, her and her organisation, because mm. it's a big organisation and they do get stuff done. And I think in the run-up to it, they they were doing an incredible job of um, of doing a teaser campaign with little snippets from the studio and, you know, not releasing any music, but it was like, this is coming. Mm. By the time 13 got released, it was, it, it was really anticipated. And I think at the time to hit number one in 33 countries was massive for a band. You know, it's, um, that's not an insignificant act, uh, thing for what's effectively a legacy act, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I, I think it was it was an important last word to have 
from yeah. the band for the fans' perspective. Mm. You know, I think the Bill Bill Ward thing aside, which you've answered, I think it's yeah, that smarts and, with people. Yeah, yeah it's it, it was more than look. I'm gonna be honest. At the time, it's the reason why I didn't watch the show in Brisbane. Mm. Here, you know, like yeah. they had uh, Tommy Clefetus. Who Tommy Clefetus? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's Aussie's drummer. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I thought. No, look, I'll I'll sort of keep my memories because yep. Sabbath. The truth is, Sabbath aren't my era. They're beforehand. Yeah, Aussie is. I saw Aussie yeah. when he came to Australia in 1998. That was the first time right. he toured here. He tried to come here many times beforehand, but it was always aborted for some reason. It's but probably, I thought probably immigration. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's. I mean, he's he's got. A, he's led a very. He's had a very colourful relationship with drugs yes. and alcohol. Let's just say that. You know, and that's clearly obvious. God knows how he's alive at the moment, the poor bastard. But uh, yeah. we saw him last summer. I mean, he 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 did the Commonwealth Games closing. Yeah, um, saw and that. he that was good. He went. <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. That we um, he was he was unsteady when he got there, but the adrenaline kicked in, and he was he was brilliant. He was funny, um, and I think that gave him a real boost. So you had you had something to do with the production and the mixing side of it. Yeah, because stage, we had to, we needed to um, have. We did the opening. Tony did the opening, and then they did the closing. Um, we had to provide backup to the broadcast. Like any of these big events, you have to yeah. have backups of everything. So um, that was it. Was a really nice thing because I, when we were making thirteen, went during during twenty twelve was when the Olympics happened. So we'd been heavily influenced by the positivity and everything that was going on in Britain at the time. Cause we, I can't remember when did Sydney had the 2000 Olympics, did it? Correct. Um, yeah. And then there was 2004, 2008 was Beijing, I think. So Athens it was like, Beijing, then you guys, that was yours, it. Yeah. And then it was like, well, fucking Britain aren't going to be able to do anything. This will be a, sh- you know, a shit show. And we mm. fucking rocked. It was a brilliant, brilliant Olympics. So we were really riding high on positivity and um so to to be involved in that last year was wonderful and we had um some of the production staff and the designers and the um staging people had done the last few olympics including 2012 so it mm. was like one of those lifetime achievements i mean mariana had had a motorbike crash a moped crash last summer so she was on crutches for 3 months but she was able to be part of that. And my son came and helped her because I was there all day on the closing. And they he helped her get up there. And we we had a really nice, just lovely event. And um, um, you know, everybody was just blown away by it. And I think that's that's sometimes what it comes down to. You know, I, I saw um Sharon and Ozzy at the end of it just in the compound, just beaming she was so chuffed at how Aussie had come to life yeah um and it just you know it's that's why it's a bit sad with what's going on at the moment he's obviously he needs he, he he would just need so much of that adrenaline wise to get him back on the you know on the horse doing touring that it's probably just too late for that um and I think that's that's the shame of it you know everybody gets older the mortality creeps in and um you want to remember how it was. So, yeah, you, you know, it's 10 years ago, 13. Like, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Shit. God, I was in my 40s then. Wow. Jeez, so it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, 
and you you sort of you forget how how much time passes and what what has happened you you can easily get caught up in all the negativity and then you look back and you go actually you know what what happened in fucking the last 20 years this is incredible so i guess that's just um, we're on this on this train and we can't get off can we we just have to sort of absorb everything and try to make the most of it in the best way possible no i i absolutely agree yeah and i mean again i'm into some of these questions are starting to come through to me Mm, now so i'll ask one more but um did you have to record dave holland back in the day or did you have to remove his tracks yes i did i did i did his tracks and the other ones um yeah the um the dave holland thing was um that's how I met Tony was when when we were mixing Dusk, Kit said to me one day, he said, Do you think you can prep the next session? Because it would, you know, this was like a full um analog mix, 48 tracks. Mm. So we'd we'd have to clear parts of the console, repatch, do all this kind of stuff. He says, Do you mind if I go out for two or three hours? I went, ah, of course not. I thought we were off to the pub again, Kit. And he'd be like, No, not <laughs> on this occasion, because he said I'd invite you. Um, he said, No, I've I've heard that Tony Iomi's um got Don Airy and Glenn Hughes in his um home studio writing. And I just thought it'd be good to go and see him and maybe see if we can get him in here. Mm-hmm. So um they he went across and then a couple of weeks later when there was a, I think we possibly had a break in mixing or there were some recalls to do or whatever. Um, it came in and we, we mixed a couple of songs. Um, and, um, Kit then had to go off to do, um, the guy, guy's name, Mark Matievich, the guy, the band's name was Steelheart, I think. Okay. Steel and uh, Mike Matievich, and he had to go off and help him out on a promotional tour. So Tony came in and started uh, and was just putting demos down. They'd been working at this little studio nearby, but he liked UB40's place. It was a bit more him. It was a proper studio. And he said, um, his manager, uh, he came up to me and he said, would you fancy um, fancy doing some recording? Um, you know, I've got some ideas. I went, yeah, of course, you know, that'd be great. Cause he's a really nice guy, funny as fuck. He seemed pretty <laughs> relaxed. And, um, and my first proper day with him was, um, uh, after these mixes was, um, he, Dave Holland, Glenn Hughes and Don Airy turned up and Don Airy was like second, second or third hero of mine. I was like, John Lord, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Wakeman number two and <laughs> Don Airy number three because Don Airy did the beginning of Mr Crowley and Eyes of the World by Rainbow mm. so I was like I am going to bug the fuck out of you asking you how you did this <laughs> and he was lovely Don um, and Holland came in and um, he hadn't played drums in ages and Glenn was fucking ripping the shit out of him about the fact that he used to wear slippers on stage so he's there in his in the uh, judas priest leathers and whatever but he's wearing carpet slippers you know all this stuff and to be honest nobody had any kind of inkling that anything untoward was going on um we just years later i had a call off um tony's manager saying that um that he'd been sent down for 
these alleged crimes and Tony and what had also happened was those those songs that we'd recorded which were only meant to be demos had been leaked and they'd come out as a bootleg yeah and Tony wanted to right those wrongs he said they weren't fit for release he said there's some bloody good songs in there he said I don't really want the association with someone that's been convicted so here's an opportunity for us to because he and Glenn were talking about working together again so they said well why don't we just get back in and and do what originally we wanted to do because the songs there was only one riff that had ever been used from that and it was the track that Tony did with Billy Corgan um on his oh, solo okay. album yeah um and there's this riff in the middle of it that goes and it starts this you know heavy riff thing and Billy Corgan had liked that so they put that in so Tony said I've got to come up with a new riff for that so so yeah he came up with a new riff for that it was fucking brilliant it's a track called Don't You Tell Me and apart from uh, beefing up some of the guitars and resurrecting the track that which which was known as Evil Sooty um, because at the time there was, I've got a great photo of um, of the the other drummer Jimmy Copley, who sadly he died a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a photo of Tony, me, and uh, Jimmy with Tony holding Sooty, the little bear, above my shoulder. Because what had happened was Tony was trying to do a solo album, and he didn't want it to be Sabbathy. He wanted it to be a little bit more just him. Mm. Um, without the constraints of Sabbath. So there was this one track called Time is the Healer, and it was so fucking Sabbath that they said, we we just can't put that on this project. And uh, Glenn had nicknamed it Evil Sooty because it was just this heavy, evil track as usual. So um, mm-hmm. so that, that stuck. So Evil Sooty got resurrected, and we just we recut the drums. We cut, cut them in a few days. And um, fixed anything that needed fixing. Um, didn't do any meaningful guitars. It was literally just new guitars on that one song. Um, everything else was just tidy it up and mix, do a couple of edits, and that was it. it got released. Um, then all the wankers came out and started saying that um, how dare we fuck with the original? And it's like it was a fucking bootleg. Fuck off! You know, yeah. you shouldn't have had it in the first place. Um, this is why I'm looking forward to this Forbidden being released because nobody liked Forbidden, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to get loads of hate mail about the fact that I fucked with them with what should have been like the original album. All I did on this Forbidden album was. Tony and I went through and and chose and recomped guitar solos that felt more like they were him because he was like yeah. I never really got invested. It's interesting what you said about Bob Daisley. I think there was a time when Tony's investment in it had just gone. He was like, yeah. "It's just becoming so much for me." This was after grunge had hit. This was ninety three, ninety four. So you know, it's like I've, we've gone in together and we've approached it like we've just been in the previous day working on some stuff and now we're going to comp the stuff together. So we've done the album that Tony wants wants it to be. We did the same with um, what became the Depp Sessions because it was started at Depp, UB40 Studio. And that was the that was the Dave Holland thing. Um, and he had a groove to it. You know, he was a good drummer. But you can understand the 
the horrible connotation. It's, it is it is a real shame because you've got the, um, you know, by association, the poor guys in Lost Profits. It wasn't yeah. their fault their Big singer time. was a pedo, yeah. but it destroyed oh, their horrible. career. It's vile. So you don't really want that association. Um, and ultimately, the the songs on that album are really good. There's some incredible Glenn Hughes vocals on that lyrics he he'd gone through rehab the year before so he was raw everything about that album mm. is him dealing with getting sober in 1995 yeah or whenever it was and it's a brilliant piece of um story from him you know it's like and just stunning bass playing we had to tone it down a bit i mean we were having because he's funny glenn he just he shows off he's a nutcase and um he'll put all these clever licks in and yeah. you're like no nah, maybe not <laughs> so you chop a couple out but i mean brilliant absolutely brilliant um he's yeah. so, life isn't he glenn he oh, just strikes me as that he's just yeah he's got enough energy for two or three lifetimes Christ, he is brilliant. I mean, some of this is the thing about these people. Um, in in that camp, in the in the Sabbath side of things, they've been some of the funniest experiences that I've ever had because they just have no filters at all. <laughs> they are really, really funny people. They're from a different era too, though, aren't they? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But you know, they've they worked up from the the grimy, horrible industrial areas around Birmingham where mm. there was no possible chance of any of getting out of there with any kind of career that was different to anybody else. It's like probably like being a, a miner up in the northern area of the UK back in those days when, mm. you know, all that you could do is go down the mine and that would be your life. Um, you know, it wasn't exactly an incredible future which makes it all the most more amazing that rob halford survived with you know yeah. being in the closet for all those years i mean his book's incredible it's stunning. yeah his book's amazing i listened to the audiobook too to your point about mm. audiobooks yeah and, yeah uh, it's um but i mean that's you, you do what you got to do to survive right you that's do. what came to mind when i was yeah. listening to him talking about his his life experiences yeah. there yeah. yeah and so i think um yeah i think with the um it's a shame what happens, um, and we'll never know the truth behind Dave Olling because he died, didn't he, a couple of years ago? And there was talk well, it about should it. be mentioned he refutes the allegations. He, yeah, uh, I heard that. He yeah. died. He, he denied. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's George. it's terrible. You know, yeah, it, it's a shame that shit goes on, and it's a shame that um, we all know that there are um, there are people on death row that are. Um, never pardoned and then later you find out that some someone was had had some kind of axe to grind it's it's awful it really yeah. is look what we don't know i think was it what is it did a jury convict uh dave holland i can't mean, it, i don't know a, because a, again this all yeah <laughs> i guess all this happened when it when it originally came to to being um I don't think the internet had been mentioned by the time we were redoing it in 2003, maybe. Mm -hmm. I doubt I had Wi-Fi. I don't think even that was a thing. So, yeah. we, you know, I never looked into that kind of stuff. I was just like, well, this is quite a nice opportunity to, um, to get a, another album out. And that led into Fused that came after it, which was a great mm. solo album of Tony's. Um, 
So really, I was. Um, it's not even being blinkered. It's just like uh, again, I can't do anything about it, and it's not affecting no. me. So I better better not delve. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be politically correct or anything. I'm just like I don't know. No, I we could... don't know. Yeah, no, it's the same no. thing with the Pete Townsend thing that happened around about the same yeah. era. Yeah, you know, but he—I he, I mean, look, I, just speaking plainly, I mean, he's got a lot more money than what Dave Holland ever had. I mean, what a yeah, maybe. I mean, his situation seemed to be pretty cut and dry to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in terms of in terms of what what the police found, and yet nothing happened. Yet with Dave no, then, Holland, he was convicted. And, so, and Gary Glitter <laughs> and Adam Mance. <laughs> yeah, do you know? All, all, yeah, do you know the? Fu- I mean, it's not funny, but it's like you can't. Again, you've got to own it, and you've got to you you can't deny shit goes on. So, um, Kit Wolven, um, he he did the final Gary Glitter album. He was all excited about it because he was oh, like, wow. I can't believe I'm going to work with Gary Glitter. This is hilarious because it was. It's like, mm. fucking hell, Gary Glitter, brilliant. And Danny Sprigg, who was on the Cradle of Field stuff, he did the first Lost Profits album. I'm like, mm-hmm. what is it about us? We've all <laughs> been... <laughs> it's a club I, I am a member of, but, you know. <laughs> but you can't, you can't erase history. That's the point. If you yeah. try to erase something, it's like when I went through all of my shit nine years ago, I am, as soon as I was strong enough, I was using my experiences of, of mental health problems to go and talk. And I've talked to young people. I've talked at NAM. I've done a lot for the mental health thing. And I've been very open about what, what went on with me and my weakness. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say weaknesses, but the way I was nearly destroyed by it all because mm. it can't be used against me. I'm honest. And I, I tell you what, if if all I ever did was have a terrible nervous breakdown and descend into the pits of despair and have a car crash with a Smirnoff factory for a few months and nearly die. Yeah. If that's all I ever did wrong, that's not so bad. And if people know about that because of the pressures of what this industry and the world can do to you, then I'm going to do good with that knowledge rather than try and deny the facts that, you know, shit happens. Yeah, it's very um, and I have to, yeah. It is. And I have to say, Glenn Hughes, uh, we, we worked with Duff McKagan for a very short time on one of the projects. And I look back at those two people and I think, my God, actually, that was almost a sign. Um, having been around those people as to how life can be better after trauma like that, because Glenn, <laughs> Glenn comedically says that he was booked into the Betty Ford clinic, but they couldn't get him in until uh, Boxing Day, December the 26th. So he thought he'd do a, a new round of uh, toot on <laughs> Christmas Day, just to have one last go, and it gave him a heart attack. Duff McKagan, famously, he was taken to hospital. His pancreas had exploded, mm. and he was... Um, you know, stomach acid was going all down his leg internally, you know, and to see how those guys have turned their lives around and they're larger than life characters. I was like, yeah, yeah, there is a, there is sometimes you get a warning and it's what you do with it after that, that is important. Yeah. I agree and, with um, you. I think yeah, that's really good, good life lesson. Painful at the time, but it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I kept my sense of humor all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, you've, yeah, you've, you've so. had a wonderful career, mate. I mean, it's a career. It's an exemplary. Well, I hope it's not over. <laughs> well, it's it's a career that, in some ways, is look. I, I get the producers and engineers and 
yeah uh mastering engineers you sort of you are behind the scenes a little bit but if if it's not for mm. you the music doesn't happen okay so the musicians Absolutely. are one part of it yeah but that's that's why i interviewed chris bell and nigel wingrove for the for the yeah visual and the photographic aspect of what cradle of filth are all about because yeah. they set the tone for the visual element of the band you set the tone and it is really important to make this point you set the tone for what the band sounded like when they broke large that's mm. your that's that's your handiwork that did that and without that, would that band have broken large? It's debatable. Absolutely. And, I'm, I, you know, I keep saying it's not me being humble, but, but Kit Wolven was massive in that that album mm. as well. You know, that was that was the reason the album got made um, and to the level it did. I did have a huge part in it. But if you're going to say a team effort, that was a bloody good team effort because yeah. he put trust in me and I, I hopefully – um ran with that you know and sprig danny was great he was good on it um um he took a lot of um a lot of what that album was about and we took that into the following album and mm. um so i'm proud of, of dusk i think i love it i think it's a great album it mm. really is um i love it with all the tempo change as well there's a that you know people are like oh you know, it wanders about a bit, doesn't it? Shouldn't they have used a click? No. Nope. It's oh, what it's no, meant it to do. People it, it don't say that. Flows. They do say that. They have a clue, yeah. Look, yeah. So the greatest albums ever, you know, yeah. they have a they they have a cadence. Yeah. Don't they? They yeah. have a cadence we, and we didn't know about crazy. click tracks until the fucking mid eighties and no nineties. Mm. They become the um the the noose around drummers' necks nowadays. They're horrible things. They're not necessary unless you're well, doing the, the te- technical death this, metal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, bands like Archspire and stuff, I totally understand yeah. why you need them and uh, Cryptopsy and that sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. when it comes to vast symphonic stuff, you know, I mean, do, do, I mean, I don't know, but do the percussionists in these vast chamber orchestras, do they use click tracks? I, I would hardly nope. click tracks. I would no, say that they um, wouldn't. They're on the pulse of the conductor. Yeah. And I tell you what, because I, I I do stuff for the, one of the conservatoires, Birmingham Conservatoire up near here, and I've heard conductors in training with an orchestra under their baton, and I've heard what a difference a conductor makes to an orchestra's performance. All right, yeah, they are they are literally Harry Pottering <laughs> the orchestra. <laughs> into being a unit and um and it's incredible and it's that is the pulse of the music you know um i i learned classically i i remember seeing the you get notes at the beginning of a sheet of music saying you know approximately 96 crotchets to the minute or whatever and it needs to be with a sort of a lilting feel and you've sort of set the metronome click 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 and then you'd stop and you would play and that's what derived the feel and as you say the ebb and the flow of it it's really important you can't um that it is genre dependent but i i don't think there's that many bands that um that it has to be tied down to click tracks. Um, there's a lot of stuff that goes on live where it's like, oh shit, yeah, they they're flying in loads of stuff off tools and whatever. But um, I don't often hear of of audience members saying, "God, they 
they dragged a bit, didn't they, in that second section yeah. of that song? Um, I only no notice when you're out when you're out of the yeah. the tracks. So I'm, I'm as I say, I'm a muso and I, I play with mm. the click track. We play with tracks because you've yes. got to. If you're playing with yeah you know, Britney Spears songs or whatever, you need yeah. all that shit going on in the background. And uh, if you don't play with a click, it, we have it coming through our monitors. So yeah. bing, boom, bing, boom. <laughs> you just <laughs> you hear this bloody thing going, and you're playing along, and you just Brilliant. you actually the only time you 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 recognise it's there is if it's still going at the end of a song. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm so, I've been a musician for 30, I'm 44, so it's about uh, 30 years now. Right. Um, and about 20 years of that I've been playing regularly. So yeah. uh, on stage that is and in front of an audience, I mean, like mm. with a mic, you know, with a mixer and a console yeah. and uh, all the usual stuff. And, um, yeah, you become accustomed to certain things, don't you? But I bloody hate it, to be honest with you. I wish mm. to your point about the 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 uh, the allegato. You know this sort of yeah. thing. You know, yeah. You, just um, just just follow it. the emotion of it. Yeah, I you know. know. And there's 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 just this stuff. I mean, especially like with Tony, it really struck me once something. So I think it was even something Bill said to me years and years ago. He's like, "I'm there to follow Tony," and it's like, "Yeah, you think of the drummer as the person that's leading the yeah, that's incredible the charge, yeah. but no, it's the riffs." And mm. Tony's internal chronometer is incredible. He knows what that riff is meant to sound like. I mean, if you listen to some of the gigs from the um, <laughs> the eighties of you know on the remastered um, box sets, there there was certainly something else influencing the time time <laughs> signature. Uh, I said to him, I said, "Fuck me, mate!" I was listening to. Um, I think it was volume four or something. They did they did a re-release a couple of years ago and I was doing vinyl approvals. And uh, I remember did I, you do that? I remember listening to that. I just yeah. listened to them. I, I I'm right. just approving the actual vinyl so that, mm. that um there's quality control after the, the pressing, just to make yep. sure there's nothing untoward. And I was fucking listening and I phoned him. I said, Christ. I said, I've just sat through a fucking hundred outtakes of I don't know whether it was war pigs or something. And then then NIB happened. I said, and it sounded like you were all on fucking crack. He goes, Oh, it's probably Coke, mate. But you know, it's like insane the speed some yeah. of these things went at. But generally, you just get this the music's there to be enjoyed and to have this um um this pace to it that's meant to make you you your body move to it. Um, and I get it. I know I'm very, very much sounding old now, and I don't. I I am not into speed metal, and I I don't understand why anybody would want to do that. I've been to thrash gigs, and they were fucking fantastic, but they were they were almost like punk because it was it was a different kind of storm and drang of a massive performance of. Energy. It wasn't way of framing it. Yeah, still one. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not. It's not something where it's like a technical exercise. No, I know, but but look, I, I, from what I understand, I mean, I, these guys haven't come out and said it directly, but it's been implied. But uh, we know that Dave Mustaine took a bunch of speed, and same thing with right. the guys in Slayer. I mean, that's that's how that's how <laughs> punk fused with Black Sabbath and yeah. Led Zeppelin and these bands and became thrash metal. That's what happened. Yeah. You yeah. know, it was these these guys were playing classic guitar riffs, so you know, um, deep purple riffs, this sort of thing, yeah. and Led Zeppelin riffs, and they're taking speed, and they're like, but we also love Sex Pistols and these other bands. 
and dead Kennedys and shit. And mm. the, the, Megadeth were, were open about it. They wore the dead Kennedy mm. stickers on their guitars and stuff. Yeah. And two of the two of the guys in the band, Gar Samuelson and um, Chris Poland, they were kicked out of the band for heavy drug use. Dave Mustaine was kicked out of Metallica for drug use. So this stuff, it's not new news, this stuff. And and I mentioned it earlier on, as soon as Dave Mustaine got clean around 1991, 1992, you can tell, you can hear the music just shifted. Yeah. It shifted big time. Yeah. That's, we we owe, drugs are fucking bad, I get that. Yeah. We owe them a lot from from a musical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, they uh, were mind they were mind enhancing, weren't they? They were like they liberated people. Yeah, they and, did, um, and and they 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 new ideas. They were a filter for new ideas too. It mm. turned out, and and these guys, young guys with huge egos like Dave Mustaine, who just wanted to kill everybody from a stage, uh, yeah. they were able to do that under the influence yeah. of these substances. I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't think we can excuse Motley Crue on that front because uh, <laughs> God knows, God knows what we can excuse them on because not not because they. I was going to say there's not much you can excuse them for, but. Oh, my God. I think I around. saw their first ever UK gig. I was at that that Monsters of Rock at Castle Donington in 1984 when it was oh, yeah. um, Motley Crue played their first gig over here. Gary Moore was doing Victims of the Future. Um, Ozzy was doing Bark at the Moon and Van Halen were doing 1984 and ACDC headlined. Mm. And uh, that's why I didn't go back for 25 years. I was like, yeah, done. <laughs> But yeah, it's great. I mean, I love the fact that I've come, I've, I've grown up through, um, through that era of um, of music. It's brilliant, you know. It's just yeah, where things weren't so faceless. Um, you know, people have personality. That's why some someone you know, band like Ginger stick out because they've got Tatiana at the front. Um, yeah. You know, um, we walked out of one of their gigs because it was like being a fucking rave. <laughs> it's just like I'm with you. I, I, <laughs> I'm totally with you on the ginger thing. I think Tatiana's a superstar, but yeah, I'm not with the music. I I, mm-hmm. I look at the live gigs online, and to an extent, I look at the people who like them too. You know, fans base yeah. reflects the audience, and yeah. meaning that what the music set, like what the musical experience is going to be when you go to a gig. And uh, yeah, yeah, I've I watched a few of her live performances, like the gigs. The one down in Melbourne, she released, or that mm-hmm. band released as a. Uh, as an entire album, I've listened to that, and yeah, I don't think I get it to be honest with you, but that's okay. You don't get it, yeah. No, no, we're just getting old. <laughs> You'll be catching me up soon. <laughs> Forty-four, yeah, I feel it. Believe me, some days I feel it, but um, yeah. I mean, at least I've got some context and some perspective. I was there when black metal broke, you know, and and yeah. and death, not death metal. Death metal is just a bit before my time, and so far as when right. it broke with Cannibal Corpse and Morbid Angel. Yeah, but um, but but your your involvement in 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 the Cradle of Filth side of things, it's very important, mate. And you know, oh, I hope thank I've. You. I hope I've given you that 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 impression sufficiently. Yeah. Like without you, the music doesn't evolve the way it does. And I've listened to a bunch of your interviews, and you get asked about Judas Priest and Black Sabbath, yeah. and I understand that. But the Cradle of Filth thing has often been glossed over. Over. Yeah. Whereas I actually think, in a lot of ways, that's the most important thing you've been a part of because of the impact mm. it's had. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think it's on um, when I. I don't look at my website. Why would I? But I think it's uh, it's in there as one of the top three that I 
certainly up there because it was an important one. It's you know, and I also do the shock shock value of it. I put it next to Britney Spears as well because <laughs> um, you know that why wouldn't you? Cradle of Filth, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. Why not? Yeah, why <laughs> I'm not? Same era. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's um, I think it was important, and it actually it had a massive impact on me because it opened my eyes to that genre and to the fact that they weren't scary people. That mm. um, you know, it um, it gave me the confidence to be part of something like ah, the gladiators. I was going to tell you about the gladiators. Let's do it. Fuck. Go there. <laughs> um, I mean, it's only it's only some somewhat hilarious in hindsight because. Um, they so the Gladiators TV show was filmed. The UK one was filmed in Birmingham, mm-hmm. and um, the the new season was starting. And Stock Aiken and Waterman had written a new version of the Boys Are Back in Town for the Gladiators to come and perform. It was going to be like the the preseason um, adverts on TV. So we had the Gladiators come down to the studio to have in-studio stuff done where they could sing their vocals to the boys are back in town and they're fully kitted out in all the light crew and everything. And it coincided with us making Dusk. And um, so upstairs is the guy who originally recorded Thin Lizzy's version of the boys are back in town, Kit Wolven. And downstairs you've got the light crew clad gladiators. And um, so we... Kit came downstairs and he he nearly frightened the engineer to death because he's like, what are you doing to my song? And then he uh, he explained who he was and everything. And they the gladiators had a nice laugh. And then it was decided that um that we uh that catering was being supplied by the um the company, which I think the AR guy for the company was one Simon Cowell, um, wow. who turned up to um to oversee mm. matters. So we had a really beautiful conservat- conservatory and um, and chill out room on on the top of the building. So gladiators have all the catering in, and um, and Wolf, who was the oldest one of them, said, "Who's that other band in here?" I keep seeing. I said, "Oh, they're called Cradle of Filth. They're a, a black male. <laughs> do they want something to eat?" I went. I don't know if they do, but I'm definitely getting them up here because this is going to be the funniest thing ever. So for the next hour, you've got the Black metal, hoodie-clad, inappropriate T-shirt and hoodie-wearing Craigler filth mingling with the gladiators for this one afternoon, mm-hmm. eating canapes and drinking wine. And I tell you, it was one of the <laughs> funniest fucking sights I've ever seen. I hope there are photos of that somewhere. I, do you know what? I doubt there are. I mean, yeah. unless the gladiators took some. Well, I was just in stitches because it was the two. Everybody was just being so polite. Yeah. You know, it was like that was the thing about like even Barker was being polite. <laughs> it was just this lovely image of the two worlds of um, that that at the end we're just we're just all bloody people, you know, doing shows. Correct. It was hilarious. It yeah. was just really it's all nice, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was fun. So um, yeah. There's an image for you, gladiators, and uh, yeah, just look at the gladiators from. I wonder if anybody listening or watching will have an actual image of that. Somebody, you would, you wouldn't believe, Mike, how many people reach out to me after the. I call it the Chronicles of Filth, but uh, <laughs> the amount of people that are, are have had some sort of significant involvement in the band that's completely right. hidden. 
have been spoken right. spoken about, like the yeah. bloke who uh, directed and filmed the funeral in Carpathia video. Okay, he reached out to me just this week. He said, wow. "Yeah, I've got the video." He said he's got the the shots, the whole thing. Really, and um, I said, "Well, we've got to talk about this, and potentially yeah. and there's another avenue, maybe bringing it to life." I don't know. I use Premiere Pro, so um, right. I'm not saying I can do it, but I'm simply saying that I can put something together to resemble something that it might have been, you know, going to look like or what have you. Right, so brilliant. don't use. Yeah, so there, there's there's so much interest in this stuff. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, if you if you I mean if you just for for your own entertainment's value, go and have a look at the comments under a, a lot of the conversations that I've had. Yeah, so many people are so invested in it, and yeah, the people that direct message me, they'd remember they're of the age that they'd remember Gladiators like I do. Brilliant. We had the Australian version. Yeah, we had rugby yes. league players playing yeah. playing gladiators and all this sort of thing. And, and we, we had international five. ones as well, didn't we? There was like the international gladiators where we would uh, where I the Aussies would come too. over to the UK and vice versa. Well, it's the same production yeah. company. It was the same. Yes. Whoever owned it owned it globally, and it was just whether or not it was syndicated on which whatever yeah. station back when we had free to wear stations, you know. So right. yeah, very, very different era and in and yeah. very nostalgic era for so many of us. Mm. And an important era, era from the perspective that it formed our tastes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've never been able to get over a lycra clad woman with a pugil <laughs> stick fighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. There was uh, until you mentioned it, I'd all but forgotten Gladiators. Actually, oh, it's, yeah, it's um... probably a good thing. I started looking at the photos when I, I was talking to someone about it recently. I found the old photos. I'm like, oh my god. Fucking hell, it's hilarious. But yeah, yeah, yeah. again, brutal. a different era. It was it was something mm. that probably wouldn't work these days. It'd be called no. sexist or something. Oh, I mean, God knows. God, be some, yeah. There'd be some allegation of slander thrown at it, but uh, oh, it would be to do with slavery again because of the gladiators <laughs> being basically slaves to the Roman Empire. You can't, you can't nailed it um, right there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't don't yeah. glorify slavery. Oh, what? Yeah. It's all garbage, mate. But uh, <laughs> may you, your your contribu- contribution to music will live on. Uh, may you. you continue to keep on doing what you're doing. You know, I look forward to listening to many more of your 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 mixes and your production work, mate. Thank it's you. been so great. I mean, this conversation really, it's been a conversation for the ages. You know, the detail that you've given me uh, on so many unanswered questions are now answered. Mm. Right, and your involvement. You're one of those people again who's come up so often in conversation with people mm. and through Messenger and get Mike on, get you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, I oh, will eventually, I'll, I'll do it, don't <laughs> worry. And uh, I got around to it eventually. Uh, and thanks for responding, you know. Uh, Pleasure. Uh, thanks for getting back to me and doing this. You know, I've, I've reached out to Jan, I'll see if he gets back to me as well. <laughs> yeah, don't, rem- don't mention the paper airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just don't mention the war, eh, to the Germans, eh? <laughs> that was kind of yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but pe- people Brilliant. will, I can tell you, uh, Mike, people are going to really appreciate this one here. So Great. thanks very much for participating. Uh, yeah. Absolute pleasure. It's been nice hanging out. Well, there he is, ladies and gentlemen. The great Mike Exeter. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that one. I should add, just to keep speculation at bay, that it was Adam Ant's father that was done for child abuse and not the man otherwise known as Stuart Goddard. So there you go. If you enjoyed that chat, go across to scarsandguitars.com. There's a link on the webpage called 
Cradle of Filth conversations, and you can access so many of the chats with Cradle of Filth alumni and important people such as Mike in that link there. There are too many for me to mention here, and I'm having a chat to Paul Ryan as I'm doing this narration tomorrow. Really looking forward to that one there, and I'm sure many of you out there who've hit me up will be keen to listen to it. It's not just about Cradle of Filth with Scars and Guitars. I've had conversations with so many more important people from the world of hard rock, rock and roll, heavy metal, extreme metal, and beyond. I'm talking about Chris from Skeletal Remains, Tobias Samet from Avantasia, John Campbell from Lamb of God, Tony, my mate Tony Dolan from Venom Inc., Scott Carstairs from Fallujah, so many, in fact, far too many again for me to mention here. Just dive into the podcast link there and you can sample many of the conversations. Maybe if you like listening to the podcast, that means that you might want to read the book as well because I've written one. Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. On the front page of the website, there is a banner. Click that link and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice. You can download a sample if you complete the purchase. I want to know because I want to thank you personally. There's some more information to come about the book, but before we get to that, I need to bid you a fond farewell. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast. Until next time... It is a very goodbye for now. This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, 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 just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was 
very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name, and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book. <laughs>